Does Wuxia have anything in common with spaghetti westerns? Maybe a bit of a strange question, but I've got a guest on the show for this episode who thinks that yes, it definitely does, and that's a certain somebody who goes by the name Deathblade. He's not as ominous as that name might suggest. Before we get on to my chat with him about Gulong's Seven Killers and his translation of it, we're going to do the news, the Trichofic news. Trichofic, for new listeners, that's the name of the show, Translated Chinese Fiction. Not, as I reiterate, the Church of Fake News. That would be on a different podcast. So our first news item, it's a self-referential one. Uh, I've made a little webpage on our Podbean host site that should be really interesting or really handy for anyone listening who's into Chinese sci-fi. So if you just go to my Podbean site, Trichofic, so trchfic.podbean.com, there's a wee link on the left that says the Translated Chinese Fiction podcast series or season. Uh, so basically a wee while ago on the show I did a whole string of episodes all about Chinese sci-fi and I've made a page dedicated to uh, to that series. So it's a list of all the episodes with a wee embedded player and a description, a brief description of what the episode's about and obviously who's on it and a picture of every author as well. So a really handy thing for any of you guys who haven't listened to that season of episodes or didn't catch every single episode and want to get an overview of what they maybe missed. Go there and you won't be disappointed. The second piece of news, it's uh, kind of a follow-on from our last episode's news about the Paper Republic Sunday sentence, where they put up a very small uh, snippet of text from a book. Uh, They put up the original Chinese and then everyone is free to have their own shot at translating that snippet of text you know sharing it in the comments on the on the page so i guess that does two things it lets you have a shot if you've ever wanted to translate you can have a shot at doing a little nugget of it and it just shows up the fun thing where everyone gets a slightly different product from the same source or a different result from the same source so fun wee thing so i'll link to that in the show notes if you'd like to give it a try um i think they ideally they'd like people to do it within uh within the the coming week but obviously, I think the page is going to stay up there. So if you're listening far into the future, I think that link will still be active, but um, we shall see. Now, the last piece of Church of Fake News in this episode relates to our uh, discussion that's coming up with between me and Deathblade. And it's about uh, China literature, which is an arm of uh, Tencent. So they publish a lot of uh, web novels and content and whatnot. They have um, gone, undergone some drama regarding contracts with authors and me and Deathblade are going to talk about that um, and the kind of crazy controversies that have been caused in the world of um, tran- uh, well, Chinese to English and Chinese web novel publishing. It, it, it's crazy. But um, I think uh, Deathblade shared an article about the, these legal dramas from Taishin, and I just tried to get on that today, and it's paywalled, but I found an article discussing the same story on technode.com, so I'm going to put links to, I think, just the Technode article, but um, the Taishin one you can find as well. Um, it's up there online. So yeah, that's the Trishific news out of the way. Let's get on and hear what me and Jeremy that's Deathblade's name, he's called Jeremy, what me and Jeremy have to say to each other about Gulong's Seven Killers and about Wuxia and Wuxia's sibling genres and publishing them online rather than in books. 
pretty fun stuff for nerds like me anyway. So I've got Deathblade on the line, although I'm probably just going to call you Jeremy. So Jeremy, how's it going and what have you been up to? Well, I'm doing good. I hope you're doing well. Um, you know, I think we're all on lockdown at this point or have been for some time. So yeah. after almost three months, I think I've kind of gotten used to it. I generally work from home. So in terms of my work, it hasn't really changed much, but normally I don't have everybody else at home with me all the time, including my four-year-old. So the past couple months have taken some adjustment. At this point, I'm kind of settled into a sort of a rhythm, I think. Mm. You're over in the States. Yep, I'm in Southern California. Right. So it's probably a bit warmer where you are than where I am. I would guess so. San Diego, I'm in San Diego and it supposedly has the best weather in the United States. I think that's probably true. It never snows. It doesn't rain much. It doesn't get humid. It gets hot, mm. but not too hot and, you know, a little bit cold, but not too cold. So yeah, I think I have it kind of lucky in that regard. Yeah. Um, speaking of being at home with everyone else, the person I know that's enjoying lockdown the most is my dog because he's back in uh, my mom's house and he's got all the attention from all the humans every day. So I think dogs are the biggest winners in this lockdown. Yeah, we, this is a cat house. My, I'm actually with my parents at the moment. It's kind of a, a really long and complicated story how I ended up yeah. here, um, but they're a cat house and I think it's probably the same for the cats. Oh, that's good. They must be sociable cats. Well, there's there's one that's very sociable, and then the other two are these, you know, twin Siamese that are that definitely think they run the house, but are also kind of scaredy cats at the same time. Uh, mm. They're not as friendly, but the other one is super super friendly. So you know, that's been fun. It's been a nice addition to the lockdown monotony, I guess. Mm. Well, there's absolutely no way I can pretend this is relevant to the show, but. <laughs> a lot of my childhood was spent with them, um, two Siamese cats in the house. Although I think it sounds like they're a bit more friendly than your your parents' ones. Well, there you go. Yeah, these ones are very vocal and um, seem very smart, but they don't particularly like uh, getting getting pet other than by their their you know their dad, which is my dad. So I guess we're kind of sort of like siblings in a way. Yeah, I think I think all Siamese cats are are vocal, and it's unfortunately not a very adorable meow that they've got more of like a <laughs> yeah when we first came here my wife was um like messaging the family saying i think i heard a, a baby crying in the house and you know it turned out to be the cats but yeah we've gotten yeah. used to it I, i'm not going to treat the listeners to my siamese cat impression i'll save that for the <laughs> patreon right so let's let's get back on track um you're pretty you you were a translator but you're pretty different from the other various translators i've had on the show they've all been kind of to speak quite broadly translators who are translating for like a traditional book publishing market but you're not quite the same rather than me outright asking you what kind of translator are you how about i ask you um to give the listeners an idea of like your journey and maybe your cultivation self-cultivation as a translator of wuxia sure it's actually kind of funny because um i have a youtube channel where i talk about the kind of novels that i translate and stuff related to chinese culture and whatnot and i just recorded a video about this exact subject because i get this question a lot people wanting to know how did I become a translator? How did I learn Chinese and, and those things? So I actually mm. just recorded that video and I have not yet edited and released it. Eventually that this that video will be on my YouTube channel and it'll be a lot easier for people to kind of hear my story. So I'll kind of give the abridged version 
um, here. Basically, I got interested specifically in Chinese culture um, when I watched the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in the year 2000. I had always been kind of interested in Asian culture in general and Chinese culture as well, but that movie really sort of struck my... It really sparked my imagination, and it got me super interested in the genre. I was researching it, reading all of the fan translations that I could find, and then fast forward a few years, I went back to college and the cliff notes on that is that after graduating high school, I went into the family business and didn't need to go to college, but I kind of wanted to later. So I went back to college and when I got toward the end of college and I was about to graduate, um, you know, this was roughly, um, I guess maybe five or six years of sort of like being interested in Chinese culture, being interested in wuxia and stuff. I decided to take a vacation to China at the end of my college career, which I did. And then that just made it worse or better, I guess, whichever way you want to look at it. I just got even more obsessed with, you know, Chinese culture, language and whatnot. And so I started studying the language formally. You know, before going on the vacation, I had done the whole like, you know, learn how to say hello and where's the bathroom kind of thing. But when I came back, I really kind of started taking it seriously and started studying. I took a crash course at first, but everything else was all self-taught. Uh, fast forward another couple of years. I ended up moving to New York City. I got a job in the financial district at a computer game company. And the financial district, you know, it's in South, South Manhattan. I decided if I'm going to work there, I definitely have to live in Chinatown. So I moved right. to Manhattan, Chinatown, where I lived for a couple of years, furthering my understanding of the culture and language. Then after that, the writing on the wall came for that company. And I decided to leave and I just moved to China to teach English, which is the easiest way to move there. I had... I was in the game industry, but I really didn't want to end up in one of the big cities, which is where the game industry in China is centered. You know, mm. in my idealistic mind, I did, I wanted to go, you know, to the country, not the countryside, but I just didn't really want to be in the big metropolis. And so that's what I did. I went and taught English uh, in a kind of a small city in China. I've After a couple that. years in China, I realized that my reading ability was very, very low. And so in order to force myself to read more, I decided hey, I should try reading one of these novels, one of these Wuxia novels that sort of was one of the instigating factors that got me onto the path of being interested in China and the language and the culture. So that's what I did. I read uh, the novel Seven Killers by Gulong. The reason being, it was a very short novel. It was like the shortest one I could find. And after reading it, I decided, you know, hey, why don't I try translating this? Because one of the things that had originally also been a big factor in my sort of uh, path of going down the Chinese culture and language side was fan translations of Wuxia novels. And so I did that. I translated that novel, Seven Killers. I posted it online. And then after that, I translated another one, and I translated another one, and I translated another book. Now, these initial books are all traditional classic Wuxia novels. Well, the one of them was a more of a modern novel, and it's kind of... A, horror wuxia novel not a classic one but the point is i initially started out translating actual literary classic wuxia novels and then a few years after that was when the whole online web novel translation scene exploded and at that point i had translated quite a bit in terms of wuxia novels you know there's not exactly a lot of people out there translating them especially on the literary side this, mm. Right now, the Condor Heroes translation is finally kind of starting to make some headway. 
But before that, there wasn't really any professional translators out there translating this stuff, to be honest. And so the anyway, the point is that the online scene exploded. I got sucked into it and ended up doing it full time. And so that's what I've been doing for the past several years. And so I guess if you were going to sort of encapsulate it, I would say that I was one of those people who just kind of went out and did it. I learned the hard way and I put a lot of work into it. At this point, I've translated somewhere around 12 or 13 million characters of Chinese fiction. That's a lot. Like, I mean, it's if you translated that into words, that's going to be something like probably four or five of the Harry Potter series put together or maybe two or three of the Wheel of Time series put together. So it's a lot of content and I learned by doing and by teaching myself as opposed to kind of, you know, coming at it from the other direction. So I, sorry, that's kind of a little bit of a monologue there, but that sort of encapsulates my story in a nutshell, I think. Well, you'll be glad to hear that I was taking notes to uh, keep the questions I wanted to ask you in response in my head, or rather store them outside my head on the paper. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go through them backwards. I think that's the most logical way to do it. So you said that um, there was a moment when the web novel, like online wuxia scene exploded. So I'm not assuming you'll necessarily know, but I'm wondering about the why and the how of that. Was there a reason it blew up at the time that it did? Well, if you want to get into deep like sociological factors, I don't claim to be an expert on that. But the long form, high fantasy Chinese cultivation stuff is a new thing. And it's exotic. It's different. Nothing like it really existed in the Western world. And so when that started getting translated at a relatively high speed. It just picked up traction very, very quickly. There, the original novel that started it all was called Stellar Transformations, and that was being translated on spcnet.tv, which is where I also posted my translations. And it was just, mm. I mean, almost an overnight sensation, I think just because it was so different and interesting and unique. And then Coiling Dragon was the next one that kind of got really popular and then the translator of Coiling Dragon is the one who started Wuxia World and then, you know, it, it literally was an explosion. I'm talking like within a matter of months and maybe even a year at, at most, there were websites popping up, people translating stuff, money getting thrown around and whatnot. And I, again, I'm not an expert in terms of all of why all of the, this stuff happened. I personally think it's just because it was something so new and different. That's my take on it. Mm. And that website you mentioned that this explosion could be traced back to S, what was it called? SPC.TV? SPCnet.TV. If you go to that website, you have to go to the forums and you click on the forum section and then scroll down and there is a Wuxia translations sub forum. And that is where I originally posted all of my translations and that's where Stellar Transformations and Coiling Dragon both took off. And there, the forums are still kind of mildly active. Like there are still some people posting translations here and there, but it quickly moved beyond that to specifically Wuxia World at first. But there were a couple other major sites like Gravity Tales and uh, Valer novels. And then when the Chinese publishers stepped in, that's when kind of everything sort of I don't know I don't want to use the wrong word, but it kind of just destabilized and a lot of bad stuff happened it's a lot of dramatic stuff happened legally and just in the online world and things got shaken up and nowadays there are a couple major sites by the major publishers and then wuxia world and that's it for the most part 
in terms of what is being legally translated, licensed officially and whatnot. Okay. I can think of maybe one of these uh, publishers that you're thinking of. But I remember when I went with my publishing master's course to the London Book Fair, I was looking for anything related to China that might be worth visiting because I was gearing up to do a dissertation on uh, translated Chinese sci-fi from a, like a publishing perspective. And one of the companies that stood out as being a bit different were called Web Novel. And then I learned what well, I learned from them. They're like an international English language. It's extension of this Chinese web novel site, uh, web novel company based in Shenzhen. So are, are, are they what you mean by like the Chinese publishers getting involved? One of these large, because TGN are part of Tencent, which is a huge company. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or would you yeah, rather that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Basically, right. basically, TDN is like the top publisher of this kind of stuff. There are a few other sites that are could kind of be considered competition, but they're really the top site. All the top authors are there, and you know this is a subject that could actually probably be the subject of a book. To be honest, because there's so many twists and turns and ins and outs and dramatic things that happen. But if to to do a very short version, essentially what happened was. Um, so Stellar Transformations and Coiling Dragon became popular. Coiling Dragon was the first novel, I shouldn't say the novel, the translator of Coiling Dragon, who founded Wuxia World, was the first one to really monetize it. He started taking donations to uh, speed up his translation process. And then that rapidly, that, that caused a bunch of other translators to jump on board and do the same thing. And that eventually drew the attention of Qidian. I, I say Qidian because you're right, they're backed by Tencent, um, Web Novel is just their um, overseas website. Originally, they called it Chidian International. Then they, later, they changed it to webnovel.com. Basically, it attracted their attention. And they were all of a sudden realized, hey, maybe there's a potential market here. Well, the owner of Wuxia World was no fool. And so he wanted to try to you know, make Wuxia World legitimate. And so he tried to make a deal with them to license novels. He didn't try. He did. He made a deal with them to license the novels. But in the end, what what happened was he basically licensed a handful of novels and then they made a handshake agreement for him to be able to license more novels. Well, <laughs> if you know much about Chinese culture, then you would probably know that handshake agreements mean less than in the Western world. And basically, and of course, this is my opinion and you know, don't take this to be canon, but basically they were kind of playing him because they never intended to give him more licenses what they wanted to do was buy out Wuxia World. And so they were work what after they did that initial licensing deal, they started working on a, a quote unquote investment deal. Now this investment deal would eventually have led to them buying out Wuxia World completely. That actually happened with another of the major sites, Gravity Tales. Just literally last week, Gravity Tales finally the the um, URL switched to web novel. So if you go to Gravity Tales, it redirects you to web novel. That was their ultimate goal. But the owner of Wuxia World didn't want to sign the deal because what happened, what they wanted was they wanted the translators to sign over all rights to their translations to Qidian or to webnovel.com. That's how they work with the authors as well, at least up until recently. For many, many years, the authors on these websites, they actually don't own the IP to their to the stuff they write. And so that's what they wanted for translators as well. And the owner of Wuxia World basically was like, no, that's we're not going to do that because we need the translators need royalties. It's not fair that they put all the work into it and then you just own it. So in the very, very end, the deal fell through. And then Wuxia World 
and web novel or Xinan became big enemies. And Xinan went on the war path using every means, fair or foul, to try to discredit and destroy Wuxi world. And in the very end, it didn't really work out. Um, but yeah, so you guessed right. That's basically who I was talking about. What a weirdly kind of Wuxia-esque saga that is. It absolutely is. And when all of this stuff was happening, those were the kind of comments that were coming up a lot in you know on, <laughs> on the Novel Translation subreddit and the forums and whatnot. People were saying, like, you are being just like the bad guys in all of these novels. But they don't care. In, in the end, they really, really didn't care. They, they knew that they were powerful enough that the public opinion wouldn't really affect them in the long term. And in the end, you know, again, we're getting, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked, but part of it was a, it was a big strategy on their part because of the Tencent IPO for their, their novel side. They wanted to just have an international presence that they could use to sort of like, you know, look fancy to investors. That's basically one of the main reasons they were doing web novel. And because of that, they don't really care, at least based on my understanding, they have never cared and don't really care right now about it being profitable. So they were willing to throw huge amounts of money out here and there, buying up, you know, fan translations, buying out websites, you know, doing everything possible to just make their website sort of function and look good without making any money because they had a huge war chest of cash to work with. And again, it was part of a strategy on the part of Tencent. And there's a, a I think their subsidy, subsidiary is called China Reading. It was part of their strategy to try to get investors and, and you know, build their company, not to just, they didn't really care about translating the novels, to be perfectly honest. And that's more than clear now because their website, they, they've literally stopped uh, hiring qualified translators. They machine translate stuff. They'll, mis they'll machine translate stuff and then say to the audience, basically, well, if you like this, then we'll hire a real translator. And then, you know, you have to pay for it because they don't translate for free the website in general. I mean, so, yeah, it's it's you hit the nail on the head when you said it was a very kind of wusha story. Well, I guess everyone loves a really devious villain. Yeah. And, you know, they have to exist. Yeah. Um, what you said about trying to attract investors um, that that rings fairly true to me. Um, I, I chatted to the web novel people who, well, the people representing web novel at London Book Fair. Yeah, one of them in particular, he was he was very friendly and he was happy to tell me stuff. After the fair, I, when I reached out to them to be on the show or something, I didn't get anything. But this dude was um, really charming and I watched him give a talk to all these different international publishing people at the fair. And yeah, it, it did kind of seem like the idea was to one, present themselves like just introduce themselves, make their presence known, but two, to kind of, it seemed like they were trying to, like the, what am I trying to say? The people whose interest they were trying to attract um, would be like larger or large companies uh, with the aim to like have them put in money. But that, that's about all I can say. And it's probably all about all I should say. Um, so let's rewind a bit. You mentioned earlier about cultivation novels. So that's a particular kind of genre, sister genre or subgenre or or something related to wuxia. So um the homework that I did for this yeah, for this wuxia season and even just reading around online after having met the web novel people has taught me that there are kind of like a family I think of wuxia and wuxia related genres and the names I've got here on my paper are wuxia, xianxia and xiahuan. So I want to ask you Number one, are there others that I've missed? And number two, what what are these three? Or maybe what are Xianxia and Xiahuan? Because in my last episode with Gigi Chang, 
the uh, Jin Yong translator, we dealt with Wuxia. That one's been explained. So it's Xianxia, Xiaohuan, and any others that are out there that we'd like to know about. Sure. Well, I think you have a, you actually have either a typo or a misspelling or a misunderstanding. <gasps> the second one is actually Xuanhuan, X-U-A-N. Xuan Huan. Sorry yeah. about that, guys. Is it okay. <laughs> Xuan Huan, um, right? Yeah, so basically, I generally refer to both Xianxia and Xuan Huan as cultivation novels. Cultivation meaning immortal cultivation. The characters of these novels practice generally some kind of magical, immortal cultivation techniques that will allow them to eventually become an immortal or, you know, beyond that. Usually the level of being an immortal is sometimes kind of lower on the totem pole of the ultimate levels that they reach. And it, the difference between the two is subtle. And so I have a video about this on, on YouTube as well. It's one of the first videos I did a couple of years ago. And I think in that video I mentioned, and I'll reiterate now, I honestly think that for most people, it doesn't really matter whether something is like the, the true fans that read a lot will be able to tell the difference. And in the in the past, I would often respond in comments to people who would be like, this is a good Xianxia novel. And then I'll be like, well, actually, it's... <laughs> I've kind of stopped doing that because... You're not a well actually guy anymore. Yeah, it seems like a little, a little bit petty. But that said, I feel like people... So for the general fan, it probably doesn't matter. For people who are really, really into it, I feel like they should know. Yeah, like me getting one of the words wrong. It's good to correct me for the record. Sure, I'll be sure to, to let you know, but I don't yeah. want to make it seem to people who are new to the to the scene, so to speak, that like they have to understand every difference. Like, don't worry about that too much. But that said, for you know, I I guess it would be like for fantasy fans. Um, shoot, let me. I had a good analogy on my on the tip of my tongue. Give me one second. Let me think. Okay. Okay. So maybe a good analogy. This is not the perfect analogy, but at least kind of will impart what I'm thinking. If you are a, a fan of fantasy, you would know that Harry Potter is basically young adult, right? And then something along the lines of Malazan is going to be like epic fantasy. So if you went and called Malazan young adult fantasy, people would be like, what? That's, that's not young adult. And if you, if you said Harry Potter is a typical example of an epic fantasy novel, similarly, people who are familiar with the genre would kind of probably raise an eyebrow at least. And so... That's kind of what it is with Xianxia and Xuanhuan. Now, the characters that make up the two are kind of important. I don't think the characters for Xuanhuan are as important. The characters, specific characters for Xianxia are important. Xian, character for immortal, and Xia is basically the character for, for hero, although the exact meaning of what Xia is is pretty complicated. Maybe you talked about it on the Usha podcast. I listened to a bit of it, by the way, not the whole thing. Um, but there's a, yeah. a lot of you know background information on what is Xia and stuff, but my my favorite um, version is Wandering Knight, I think, or Knight Errant. I think that sounds quite cool in English. Yeah, I mean, so I've thought about doing a video on this personally because I'm actually not really a fan of translating Xia as Knight Errant, but I know that's pretty a pretty popular way that some people like to to refer to it. But uh, well, yeah, it's, the, it's the rule of Xian... cool that I like it. It's not because it's accurate. I just like the the English phrase. It sounds cool to me. Yeah, it does sound cool, and it, it encapsulates a lot of it, but the problem is it doesn't make any sense when you convert it into Xianxia, um, so I don't, at least in my in my personal opinion. Um, I think that just using hero works well enough, because you don't, it wouldn't make any sense to call the 
people, the, the characters in Sandstown novels, immortal knight errants. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yes. Um, but the point is, they're novels about immortals and people who try to reach that extremely high level of power. The main difference between the two is that, if you want to simplify it, Sensha is purely Chinese. It's it's really a Chinese genre, and the foundation is Chinese mythology, Chinese religion, Chinese philosophy, with geography hints of as well. Other things like Buddhism right. and Hinduism are found in there as well. But for the most part, it's it's purely Chinese. The character names are going to be Chinese and the cultures represented are for the most part going to be Chinese. When you get into Sun Huan, it's oftentimes a lot more influenced by Western stuff. So with Sun Huan, the, sometimes even the character names will be Western names. The Chinese writers will use Western names for the, the characters. A typical example of that is Coiling Dragon, uh, which is, I mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the novels that sort of kicked off this whole thing. In that novel, the majority of the characters, as far as I understand, all of the characters have actual Western names, and you'll have a lot more Western influences. The novel series I'm translating now, Sage Monarch, is definitely Xian Huan as opposed to Xianxia. It has ninjas, it has mechas, it has time travel, it has um, it has what I would essentially call like gnomes, like Dungeons and Dragons gnomes, except they're like technologically advanced and have a mechanical civilization so a lot of stuff that you wouldn't see in chinese mythology and, and whatnot and so that's kind of the main difference but like i said they're often conflated even in even in china so in the news in china it's similar to how maybe 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 science fiction and fantasy isn't the best genre because that's pretty mainstream in the west but let's say maybe like um comic books or anime maybe or something like that the fans are going right. to know, but the general media probably doesn't have a deep understanding of it. And it's the same in China. Even in China, Xuanhuan and Xianxia will be conflated and mixed up and whatnot. So I'll revert to what I said earlier. I don't think it's super important to know the difference. Um, do you know in the Xuanhuan novels, in the original Chinese, if a character has an English name, will it be rendered in the Chinese characters or would it be a little bit like when you see a alphabetical word set inside the characters so would it be christopher or kulisa tufo do you know the latter they, they transliterate it right and but but it's like you said if you see kulis tufo you know that it's it's christopher the western name you're not gonna yeah. mistake it for a chinese name mm -hmm. um the other thing i was gonna say this one's not a question but when you were talking about a xian an immortal there is a quite an interesting explanation of it in a different context in another episode of this podcast and i'm really speaking to the listeners here um i had a guest on uh, brian holton who is a uh, well, he's the translator of yang lian the poet and he's of particular interest to me because he does chinese to scots but anyway the concept of a uh, xian came up and he was talking about how in like uh, old older school uh, literary translation or just common practice it would get translated as fairy and he thought that was quite a silly mistranslation and then he he, he gave his expl explanation to me of what a xian immortal is it's a, a person so it's a human being who has transcended in some way and they've in in like the classic uh, chinese culture they've done that by doing something like going up to the mountains practicing meditation eating only what was it he said pine cones or something but i'm guessing in um xianxia it's maybe a little bit more exciting than that, the way that they cultivate themselves. 
Yeah. And I mean, number one, I definitely agree about the fairy thing. I've seen fairy a lot and I just hate it like 99% of the time. It's just super silly. And in terms of, I mean, everything you just mentioned seems spot on from what I understand. And the novels usually emulate that as well. The immortals in the novels usually start out as mortal, as human, and then by means of some process, they become an immortal. And But you're right, the process is obviously a lot more dramatic and exciting. Usually it involves tribulations from heaven. Tribulation is usually the way it's translated. In other words, the idea. so the idea in most of the novels is that this process of becoming an immortal is actually a defiance of the natural order of things. It's a defiance of heaven. So heaven will usually... You know, what, now, what what exactly heaven is depends on the author and the universe that the author is creating. Sometimes heaven can just be like a, sometimes heaven can be like just an impersonal force of nature. Sometimes heaven or the heavens are actually controlled by a group of people or whatever. So it depends. But the one of the big tropes of the genre is the tribulation, which usually involves lightning falling from the sky, but it could be other things. And that lightning is an attempt to essentially destroy this person who is trying to rise up to become an immortal and only those who pass that tribulation and show themselves to be you know powerful enough to defy heaven to defy the natural order of things will eventually reach that level of becoming an immortal and you know i'm, I'm trying to enunciate these words very clearly because in the end the actual chinese character for um this immortal being is not does not have anything to do with immortality or long life or anything like that. It's a unfortunate misconception, I think. And I have a whole video about this on my YouTube channel. But basically, these immortal beings are not immortal in the sense of being incapable of dying or being able to live forever. Another key aspect of the novels is longevity. And most most of the time, as you rise up through the ranks of the cultivation system, and again, I'll point out that usually the immortal level will be kind of low on that list. Usually what happens is the person's longevity increases with each level, each higher level that they attain. And usually the immortals in the novels are not people who live forever. They might live for a thousand years or 10,000 years or something like that, but eventually they'll run out of their longevity and they'll die, or they can be killed in battle, obviously as well. So it's not as though they are impervious to damage. So in the end, the Chinese character itself is is not about long life. The, the the version that most people see in has the character for a person next to the character for a mountain. And so that's right. one reason why that whole mountain thing is a lot of times mentioned in the etymology and when people are explaining what the immortals are. And I've seen the mountain connection used in the novels a lot as part of the sort of, you know, flowery description or even a technical, actual specific part of the cultivation process. For example, in one of the most popular ones I did, I Shall Seal the Heavens, that immortal level is literally about a person and a mountain. So when they become immortal, each person will summon their own specific unique mountain with its own size and shape and functions. And they will stand on that mountain and rise up into the sky and batter the door of immortality to open it. And if they can force that door to open and step through it, then they become an immortal. So... Yeah. One thing I kind of had not not drilled into me, but I seem to recall from doing my undergrad degree in English literature, an idea that occurred fairly often is that in 
Western enlightenment, especially in, in, in like enlightenment thinking and literature, there's an idea of like going against nature, revolting against the heavens, you know, tr man trying to empower himself against the, the ways of nature. And it's always being told this like a, this is a Western thing, it's in the Western context. And the implication is there if it's from a different culture, they won't be doing this kind of perversion against nature. Well, maybe perversion is a bit load a loaded term, but going against nature for your own kind of lust for life. So it, it's it's kind of it's interesting to to hear you describing something that fits that description that I've heard quite a lot in my time as a student or as a learner of literature. But it, it's not in the Western context. It's it's the Chinese context. Um, the thing it rem the like I have a really quite still quite limited knowledge of Chinese literature, but the one thing it reminds me of is um, the the part of Journey to the West where the Monkey King is rebelling against heaven. Do you think there's like that's a route to any of this, or is it just like a, just the same sort of plot being used? I mean, I do think that has a lot to do with it, and I myself and I think many others have pointed to Journey to the West as sort of being the original Xianxia novel, and maybe that's a little bit tongue in cheek, but definitely a pregenitor when I, I've seen people you know online and in podcasts and videos and whatever claiming that claiming that Xianxia is like this brand new genre and that it came out of wuxia I totally disagree with that and again I'm not a scholar but going back to Journey of the West many 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 Xianxia tropes are directly from it or at least they're the same you know the alchemy concocting pills defying heaven the, the monsters demons and what like whatnot it's all very very sense out so i definitely think that there's a a strong connection between those two and something i i, I wanted to elaborate on you mentioning you know the western themes that you just talked about i think that there's a big misconception w when it comes to chinese culture and ancient chinese culture and this kind of spiritual side of things because a lot of people in the west think of Eastern stuff, and you know, let's just say Chinese specifically, and they're thinking of like Taoism and Buddhism, and they envision like you know monks like meditating and like tapping on bells or like you know sitting in caves and whatnot. And it's not that that is untrue, but that is a vast simplification, I think, of what you know Chinese culture is about. I saw this all the time when I was a teacher, um, and and this goes beyond just. This goes beyond fiction and beyond religion, just Chinese culture in general. I think a lot of average Westerners who haven't done much research, when they think of China, they think of people drinking tea, like doing Tai Chi and monks and, you know, you know, pagodas and the Great Wall and picturesque scenery and whatnot. And when I was uh, working at working in China as the head teacher, I would often you know, I would recruit teachers and there would inevitably be a major culture shock when they came over and realized that. All of that spiritual side is basically a tiny fraction of what Chinese culture is about. So working that background into the novels, again, as I was mentioning, it being a defiance of heaven, it's a very, actually, a, the, the way that these worlds are described, according to the, giant, the, the authors that I've seen, this world of cultivation in which people are pursuing immortality, or not, sorry, they're not pursuing immortality, well, okay, let me back up. They are pursuing immortality as part of the general scheme of things and as part of their pursuit of the path of becoming an immortal. When I first got into the novels, I was thinking, oh, these definitely should be like, you know, these old monks, these with like super long white beards sitting on top of a mountain, like humming and like they're at one with nature. But that's not the cultivation world in the novels. Cultivation world in the novels is survival of the fittest, 
the strong eat or destroy the the weak um, survival of the fittest. It's basically really, really brutal. People are competing for a very small set of resources that they need to reach those higher levels of power, whether that's the spiritual energy at the lower levels or some type of special stone or rock or cultivation technique or whatever it is. There's intense, brutal competition and you have to look out for the self. So it's actually very self-based and people have to be willing to kill others in order to be able to survive. They just have to. One of my other series that I translated, the name of the series is A Will Eternal. The main character of the novel hates fighting and hates killing and he's a coward and doesn't want to die. And But as part of his journey, he, ha he comes to realize that if he doesn't stick up for himself, if he doesn't fight to defend his friends and to defend himself and to kill the people who are trying to kill him, then he will die and he will lose his life and all of the things that he's scared of will come true. So in the end, he has to fight and he has to kill to be able to survive. And I think that's a common theme in a lot of the novels, actually. Going back to Journey to the West, so I've only seen one version of it all the way through. It was one of the film adaptations. And the thing that struck me is this Sun Wukong, this Monkey King guy, he's a wee nasty bastard. He's a horrible little shit and he's not even especially yeah. clever. And yet he's the character that has, he's not just like a... Um, very strong sort of Marvel hero sort of guy. He's insanely overpowered. He's a bit like Superman in that he just can't really lose a fight unless he's been nerfed in some way. And that reminded me of... So I've, I've never read a modern Xianxia novel, but um, I've always been struck by like the people talking about them, talking about how strong and how elevated these characters can be and that they can be like in a heaven above the heavens. And like you said, the kind of power level um, that the level immortal is sitting at can doesn't even have to be very high up the scale and what that reminds me of uh, is kind of like an this is going to be an anecdote from my childhood so uh, when i was a wee kid in the uk and um, we had five tv channels unless you were spoiled and your parents bought you a satellite dish and you had sky and if you were a kid the best thing about sky is that it had cartoon network so whenever I was at a friend, a spoiled friend's house, it would meet, the first thing I'd want to do if they didn't have a PlayStation would be let's watch Cartoon Network. And one of the shows I really wanted to see when I was sitting down in front of my friend's Cartoon Network channel would be Dragon Ball Z because I'd never seen anything like it. And I've since learned that owes a bit of an inspiration debt to um, The Monkey King and Journey to the West for various reasons. But it's the same deal. Um, there, So I'd seen like kid shows before like spider-man where there's a hero who's stronger about as strong as everyone else but he's still just a man um he certainly can't fly through the sky shoot energy beams there's no his strength doesn't get described by a power level like which is a quantifiable number it's just completely mind-bending so this, this doesn't go anywhere but it's just interesting that i'm so primed to understand what you're talking about when you start talking about characters cultivating themselves in these shensha novels if that makes any sense at all. I mean, it absolutely does. And interestingly enough, I actually have a Dragon Ball hat sitting here on my table, <laughs> which I often wear. So, but yeah, I mean, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z and whatever iteration you want to talk about is a really good analogy. I think that the, the levels of power that you see in Dragon Ball is akin to maybe the level of an immortal in these novels, maybe a little less. Because the power levels do get insane. I mean, eventually it'll reach the point where they can create worlds, create what are essentially galaxies or even universes 
and their attacks are, you know, able to destroy realities. I mean, it's, it's extremely mind mind bending. And in terms of the genre in general, I know that there are a lot of TV shows that are pretty popular and there are some animated shows that are pretty popular. I don't think any of the Sensha TV shows and animated shows really can properly convey what that what what is involved in that kind of power level. Quick question: Did you mm. watch the? I forget. I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the specific name, but there was a Journey to the West movie that came out something like five years ago, kind of a comedy. It was called Journey to the West: Subduing the Demons or something along those lines. Did you happen to see that? There is one. I the one I saw would have been about. Yeah, maybe about four or five years ago now. And there's yeah, a scene um, where Monkey King, Sun Wukong, like, transforms and becomes, like, this gigantic monkey. And then there's, like, a Buddha that's bigger than a planet, like, reaches down to try to crush him. That is definitely the sort of stuff that you get in, you, that you're going to see in the Shanghai novels, you know, gigantic planet-sized creatures. And incidentally, that scene from that movie was a direct ripoff from another uh, TV show, which I don't want to get into that topic. But point is... It does appear in movies and, and media sometimes, but I don't think very many places are going to accurately capture that. And it really makes sense when you read the novels. The novels are about the journey, usually of one person, but you know, a lot of times their friends and family will, will be secondary characters. And it's really about their journey from essentially being a mortal to being not just an immortal, but to being a god or even like the god, although it doesn't necessarily equate to the Western idea, but essentially the ultimate most powerful being or entity in existence and it's about that journey and so i think that's also one of the reasons why the, the genre became so popular because it does things that western fantasy usually doesn't doesn't really do i mean i've read a lot of fantasy i haven't read everything but these novels definitely go to a level that you don't find that often in western writing yeah i've not read a huge amount of um western fantasy the only thing i can think of that rings a bell is so it's a very strange thing when I was a teenager. When when I was early into my teenage years, my dad bought me uh, the Lord of the Rings books and I tried to read them, but I couldn't really get into them. I think I was maybe a, a bit young. But then years later, without having read them, with only having seen the films, uh, my stepdad happened, or was it, I think, yeah, my stepdad happened to have a copy of The Silmarillion and I read that from start to finish. And that starts off with like a creation myth and you learn that there's a god who made some other lesser gods who then made the immortal elves and then you know so it proceeds down to to humans um but it's not really the focus of the story and it's written from what i remember it's more written like a like a bible book like it's not there's not much character development or dialogue it's just a description of things that happen i feel like if, if you had those demigod characters fighting maybe that would be like a shiensha but yeah like you said it's definitely not something you'd associate with books coming from English language authors or even European language authors. None, none that I can think of, except maybe like Lovecraft. You could always check out, um, so my translation that I mentioned earlier, A Will Eternal. If you read the last, basically, I'd have to check, I'm pretty sure last 15 chapters, you could, you could actually read it without really knowing anything about the novel and sort of get a sense of the higher levels of power because he ends up, it's, it's almost like the beginning of Silmarillion, except it's the end, and he's the one that's doing all that stuff. So he, the main character, eventually reaches an extreme level of power, and he essentially has to rebuild the entire universe that he lives in. He's, and it, it describes the process, essentially like 
the process of evolution, except he guides it and he gives people fire and he tells them how to, he, he gives them language and he teaches them how to practice cultivation to reach um, a higher level. And then there's a, a kind of, kind of, it's not intended to be funny, but sort of funny considering we were just talking about it. There's a certain point during this process after thousands or millions of years, I forget, where he has a revelation and he realizes that he forgot to add heavenly tribulation in and people were becoming immortals too easily. <laughs> so then he adds a, a tribulation and then all of a sudden it's not as easy. And anyway, that it, it, I would recommend checking that out just to kind of get a foundation for the sorts of power skills that get involved. Right. And last question before we actually talk about the non-Xiansha book we're here to talk about. Uh, have you read any of the Three Body Trilogy books? So it's funny you mentioned that. I have, I, well, I have and I haven't. Uh, yeah, the, the answer is I have. When I, you know, I lived in China for many years without ever coming back to the U.S. And when I did finally make my first trip back to visit, uh, bringing my wife and my child with me to visit, you know, my parents, my kids, grandparents, I actually bought the entire trilogy to give to my dad because he's a lifelong sci-fi fan. And I always have intended to read it and I've always wanted to read it. It's just that I haven't had the time. And another thing is that because I do this full time, you know, it's not something I do on the side an hour here, hour there. I am full time translating Chinese stuff all the time. I kind of like don't really want to read Chinese stuff on my spare time because <laughs> I'm doing it constantly. And so I did end up reading a bit of three body problem. Uh, I, I read like uh, the first couple chapters in English and then I realized that I want to read it in Chinese. And so my, my intention is to read it in Chinese. But again, I have the problem of not really wanting to read Chinese because I read so much. So it's been kind of sitting there in the back of my mind waiting for one of these days when I have a vacation or something and I'm not translating all day, every day, mm. I'll, I'm going to read it in Chinese as opposed to the translation. Well, I'm not working as hard as you on, on that. But I know what you mean, because I try to read so much translated Chinese stuff for this podcast that whenever I read something not translated, it feels like I'm giving myself a treat, which is stupid, because I, I love reading the translated Chinese stuff. But um, anyway, the, the reason I brought that up is there is like a, f a uh, officially uh, stamped with Liu Cixin's seal of, seal of approval fan sequel, like a fourth book in the, on the end of the trilogy. And it goes to some of like the universe creation mind bending stuff that we were talking about, but in the context of, well, in the context of science fiction and in the context of that trilogy that the guy was writing his fanfic for. And he originally posted it online as like a Chinese web novel. So now that we've talked, or now that you've taught me so much about Xiansha, it makes it easier for me to see what that author Bao Shu was doing with that fourth book in the context of like, online Chinese web genre fiction. But yeah. Um, well, I'll have to add that to my reading list as well then. Totally. It is good, but you have to read the trilogy first. Um, so yeah, no rush. Well. Yeah. Um, anyway, we really should get to our book for this episode. And that is Seven Killers. And our author is Gulong. Although before we actually talk about the story, I just want to ask you one thing about, um, well, how, how did you... Yeah, first thing I want to ask is, how did this translation of Seven Killers by Gulong come about? Well, like I mentioned in my, I guess you could say my origin story, uh, I wanted to read and I wanted to force myself to read, so I picked Wuxia, and I wanted something short, so I picked 
the shortest thing I could find. The thing about Gulong is his writing style is not particularly complex. He is a lot easier to read than, for instance, Jin Yong. I don't know too much about Liang Yusheng. I know he's really popular. I haven't read much of his stuff in either English or Chinese. But the main reason I picked Gulong was my understanding at the time was that his writing was easier to understand and the book was short. That's literally the only reason why. But as I go back and look at it, like I, I, I tweeted yesterday that I was rereading it in preparation for this podcast. I just, I forgot how much I like his writing in, I, and like, I'm actually more happy with the translation than I thought I would be. I haven't read it for quite a few years. So going back to read it, I found some mistakes and some things I probably want to tweak, but overall I w- I'm pretty proud of it. And I just really like his writing style. He's just so, um, I want to say like visceral and what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, oh, and basically like cinematic, I think. His, his Reading mm. his, his stuff is like watching a movie on the page, I guess is the way to say it. And totally. So yeah, yeah that, those are the main reasons why I ended up with, with Gulong as my first, first major project. Right. And the reason or the reason I was looking for the kind of origin story of how you got that one onto the web is I want to ask you about the readership, because I was looking at the comments uh, underneath the different chapters of Seven Killers and people weren't really saying Gulong this, Gulong that. They were saying the author this, the author that. And I was wondering if they know if he's an author from, you know, who was writing decades ago, who's since passed away. There there was one commenter who was commenting on like some of the romantic uh, or even like sexual stuff going on and saying, gosh, this author must be a virgin, which is kind of ironic after you read a little bit about the life Gulong lived. Uh, so do, do you know what your readers are seeing when they see your translations? Like, well, or d- I, you read it on Wusha World, right? Yes. Okay. So when I originally posted it, like I said, I posted it on SPCNet. So oh, yeah. I haven't gone back there for a long time. But if you went back there, I suspect the comments would be a little bit different because the readers on SPCNet definitely were aware of who the various authors are and whatnot. SPCNet is the kind of place where you can go and, you know, you'll find forum threads, people debating who are the top martial artists in Jin Yong's world. Who are the top martial artists in Gulong's world? And then if the top martial artists from Jin Yong's world fought the top martial artists from Gulong's world, who would win? Like that kind of stuff. And so, right. but then Wuxia world, very, very, very different. The fandom on Wuxia world came for the cultivation novels. And for the most part, they're a lot younger, is my impression. And don't know very much, if anything, about the stuff they're reading. And yeah, it's funny because just last night when I tweeted about this, somebody responded like, um, I'd have to pull up the tweet. I don't have it in front of me, but it responded something along the lines of, I have read a lot of, you know, uh, Manhua lately. And, and this looks like a very interesting light novel in in reference (laughs) to seven killers. So I basically (laughs) responded. I was like, it's not a light novel. This is a classic Wuxia novel that came out in the seventies. Um, listen, actually, I tried to, to I, I, I tried to make it, you know, as informative yeah. as, as possible, not, not be a jerk about it. Basically, it was like, no, it's not a light novel. And I think to answer your question, the readers, they don't know. They don't know who the authors are if they're reading it on Wuxia World. And on top mm. of that, and, and in the most respectful way possible, I have to point out that the vast majority of readers on Wuxia World, especially back when I put Seven Killers on there, because you have to realize I put Seven Killers on there 
I basically just copied it over way in the early days of Ushuruob. A lot of them have absolutely no understanding of Chinese culture, or at least a very little bit. That's one of the reasons why I started my YouTube channel was because I wanted to explain a lot of this stuff because a lot of the comments where people are making fun of, of that kind of stuff, for instance, the one you just mentioned, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these novels are very, very Chinese and the interactions, the dialogue, the way people react and act is extremely Chinese. And if you don't understand the culture, it is going to come across to you as being odd or strange. I have a whole video talking about this when... I have a couple of videos talking about the matter of face and that's one of the biggest criticisms I see is are the readers saying, oh, this isn't realistic. The, 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 the characters are too dramatic. They're too sensitive. They're too easily, you know, easily offended or blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, it's not unrealistic. It's actually very realistic if you understand how face works in Chinese culture. And so I think that's another factor that plays into it. Yes. I've also lived in China. I've also um, learned sometimes the hard way about face. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. If It's like kind of like, I don't know. Um, I don't put too much faith in analogies, but like it's if you have a a, a problem or a puzzle and it makes a, or, or a code, it only makes sense once you have the key or the missing part. And then once you know what's going on beneath the surface, then all the kind of actions that are motivated by face make perfect sense but if if you're missing that one key component and there's no footnote telling you what it is then it could be a bit mystifying yeah i mean yeah. i have a video called it yeah i think i called it why face is more important than reality in chinese fantasy mm. novels and by extension to some extent chinese culture in general and it's just you know i've seen it with my own eyes over and over again where people will make decisions based on face that seem to be obviously the wrong decision or at least incomprehensible but when you are part of the culture for long enough it, it does make sense and so anyway yeah that's that's again why i did my youtube channel to begin with is because i'm hoping to kind of spread more awareness of that because it makes the novels more enjoyable even when i first started reading the novels or watching the movies i was often laughing i was often laughing at the story at the characters because I thought it was so stupid and unrealistic. And now going back, I realize, you know, it was just my own sort of ignorance. Yeah. You've actually reminded me of something I was going to mention much earlier. And um, when you mentioned kind of, a, um, an, what's the word, like an instigating moment for you and in becoming interested in Chinese things was the arrival of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is a film that came up in my last episode as well with Gigi Chang. And it was probably my first exposure to um wuxia or kung fu stuff so on one hand i was going to say something like gosh this must have been a really big moment of cultural exchange or cultural awareness in the west but i also think back to when i was a kid i watched that film a year or two later i watched house of flying daggers and if you'd asked me at the time are these stories set in china or japan i would have said Yes, uh, yeah, it's China and Japan. So I wouldn't even have known it was Chinese. Um, no, it's funny you mentioned that because same, same here. Uh, in fact, I distinctly remember um, when I went. So I went to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in theaters, and then just a couple of days later, I went over to a friend's house. Pretty good friend. They were a married couple, and you know the husband was like, "Oh yeah, I saw the trailer for that. It looks so cool. I definitely want to see it." And then his wife said something like oh yeah, I really love Japanese movies. And then he turned to her and he was like, what? He's like, are you kidding me? It's not, it's not Japanese, it's Chinese. And she was like, how do you know? 
He's like, well, just mm. look at the names of the characters. It's obvious they're Chinese. But and in you know externally, I was just kind of nodding and being like, yeah. But inside, I was like, wait a second, you can tell the difference between <laughs> two Japanese and Chinese by the names. I, I didn't even know. So that shows you how ignorant I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like also these things can register, but you don't process them. I remember watching the end credits of some like like hero. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and thinking, gosh, these names are all very short. Chinese names must be very short. And then completing uh, Mario Kart on my Game Boy Advance, and then noticing that, well, I I knew they were Japanese names because it's Nintendo, and noticing, oh, most of these names are very long. Japanese names must be very long. So registering (laughs) the difference, but never actually internalizing anything deeper than that, just remembering it when I happen to see them. But yeah, we, we seem to have become sidetracked again. So I'll ask you about the author again, Gulong. Uh, he's often referred to um, as one of the three tripods or one of the three tripod legs of Wuxia. So obviously that means there's him and there's two other authors. I think you've already mentioned them. So what makes him so good? What qualifies him as one of these three legs? And what makes him stand out from the other two legs? Well, I don't want to claim to be a scholar of this kind of stuff and there's a lot of stuff you can read online about it. I would say probably more so in Chinese than in English. And mm. I have read some of it, not all of it. I'm pretty sure there was a biography of Gulong that came out just a couple of years ago, and I have not had a chance to read it. The only things that I have to say are things that I have heard and read in like little articles here and there, and kind of just based on what I understand of their writing style. I think that one thing has to do with the time period they're writing in. I, I'm going to assume you've probably read or at least heard of the novel uh, Paper Swordsman. Uh, that goes into this really, like, you know, exhaustive study of, of that kind of stuff in the time period and whatnot. And some of it is the, you know, he became popular and was extremely prolific. And then another thing is his style is very different. So like I mentioned before, I feel that his style is a lot more visceral it's a lot more cinematic it's a lot more dramatic and i think that in fact i had a i had a comment somebody made a comment in one of my youtube videos they commented in shoot i'm remembering it in chinese yeah it was in chinese so a chinese person commented on one of my videos i did a recommendation video where i recommended my top five traditional wuxia novels and i think three of them were gulong two of them were jinyong like i mentioned i haven't really read Liang Yusheng, so I, I don't can't recommend his stuff at the moment. But basically, the this person in Chinese said something. Now, I can't confirm that this is a common saying. They claimed it was. They said that among Wuxia fans, they say that they say that Jin Yong writes novels and Gu Long writes Wuxia. That's what they said. And Interesting. So again, I can't ver- verify how you know, common of a phrase that is or, or whatever. But I thought that was very interesting because definitely their stuff is extremely different. I like both of them. There are some Jin Yong stuff that I really, really love. Now, one of the differences is I've never read Jin Yong in Chinese. The Chinese level is too high. At least it, it was when I tried to read it a few years ago. I suppose my Chinese level is probably higher now. So, you know, one of these days, one of my dreams is to read his stuff in Chinese. I never have. But I have read a ton of it translated into English and his stuff is very well written. It's very historical. 
and especially his fights are very different. I think one of the biggest differences are the fight scenes because in Jin Yong's stuff, he gets really descriptive into the fights and it's very interesting, you know, like he'll describe the movements of the hands and every single move and what it does and its trajectory and what it looks like and all of this stuff. There's even a fight scene that I remember in the name of the English translation, I think it's called Fox Volant of Snowy Mountain. I think you can get that still on Amazon. But I'm pretty yep. sure there's a fight scene that lasts for two chapters. It may be just one, but it's like really long fight scene and it's very cool. Gulong, very, very different. His fight scenes will usually last for one move or something like that. It'll involve some mm. kind of dramatic tension, some dialogue or something maybe, and then the two masters make their move and when two masters clash, one will come out alive. General kind of feeling, almost like sort of like samurai chambara movies where the samurais face off and then whoosh, and then one of them's dead kind of thing um so yeah i think that his long style itself is also very probably one of the big reasons why he ended up being so popular yeah um this was going to be one of my uh, questions a little bit further down but it's probably a good idea to raise it now so from what i could find there's a pretty limited amount of information about gulong in english online and one of the best ones is actually it's from a i think it's my chinese books which despite the english name is a french site or it's in it's in the french language and it's all about chinese literature but by the magic of uh, google translate and by the rel relatively close proximity of english and french so that auto translate works quite well i was able to read this whole book sorry not this whole book this whole web page about gulong and there was a thing on this page saying some readers have been known to say it's very easy to die in a gulong written world you can die in one move and you can the reason for your you being killed can be really um minor you can be killed off stage so to speak quite easily and the there was an influence given they actually named a specific japanese author of samurai stories uh eiji yoshikawa and i have his his name in japanese here and i can read it using mandarin pronunciations from the characters um just to flex jichuan Yingzhi. So apparently Jichuan Yingzhi in Japanese is Eiji Yoshikawa. I know nothing about him, but supposedly that's how his fight scenes worked. And that's an influence I think Gulong cited for like this one-hit kill world of fighting. Um, I don't have a question there, so I'll just charge on. Well, uh, one I, of these... I just want to jump oh, in on. quickly and say, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I just said, I think his is a more sort of brutal, but at the, I don't want to necessarily say brutal, but a very... Yeah, I guess you could say one hit sort of thing. I, I'm not too familiar with the Japanese author you mentioned. I, I did. I mean, neither. Yeah, so I, I can't comment on it, but that is definitely the feeling I get. And so interestingly, I don't want to get off the rails too much, but I co-authored a tabletop role-playing game, like basically Dungeons and Dragons, that was heavily inspired by Gulong's Wuxia fiction and other authors as well, not only him, but to a large extent him. And this is supposed to be coming out later this year in October, so it's, it's unreleased yet, but that is how we designed our world to emulate that. So instead of being like Dungeons and Dragons, where you can have a fight that goes on and on for many, many rounds and the, the characters are sort of like slowly losing their hit points in our game, it's supposed to be like Long's world. You actually only have a couple hit points. And even if you're a very high level character with high martial arts, if something hits you hard enough, you will die. And so we intended for our fight, our fight scenes in this game to last for between one to three rounds maximum. And so that was an, a direct in, a direct 
inspiration was the stuff from from Gulong and and also the stuff that you see in the movies. Although the movies, especially the the old seventies Shaw Brothers stuff and even modern stuff, they you know they're supposed to be action movies, so they tend to draw out the fight scenes a lot more, even when they're adapting Gulong works. Uh, but yeah, we did try to right. to emulate that in this game that we made. So yeah, it's a very relevant relevant point that you just made. Yeah, um, another thing I'm thinking of of like a world of one hit kills is the western the like the american wild west western because you know one bullet and you're at least knocked down and you'd i think you'd said before on twitter you'd, you'd notice that it would there are some parallels between some some kinds of wuxia including gulongs and spaghetti westerns in particular and although nothing particular was spring into mind as I was reading um, the, f- the three chapters of Seven Killers that I did read, they kind of like vigilante, no one's strictly a good guy or a bad guy, lots of double crossings, lots of twists, hunting for treasure. That was reminding me of the fairly limited number of spaghetti western films I've seen. Um, do you have much to say about that? Or, um, yeah, yeah, do you have anything to say about that? I mean, yeah, I totally agree. It's I think that spaghetti westerns are the closest that you get to, especially Gulong style wuxia. There, and and I, you know, I have questions about this because, like I mentioned, I'm not an expert, and I don't, I don't have the time or energy to track down, you know, Gulong books and interviews and whatnot. But I am curious how much cross influence there was. I do know that Gulong was influenced by western stuff. You know, I've seen you know, things floating around saying, you know, he was influenced by certain Western authors. And I've tried to confirm that in Chinese, but again, I haven't done extensive research, so I'm not sure. I'm very curious how much cinematic influence crossover there was because, you know, the Spaghetti Westerns were coming out. Many of them were coming around at a similar time to when Wuxia movies were popular. Gulong was alive and writing in the 70s and I think the early 80s as well. So I'm curious to see how much crossover there was. One of his later more I think relatively famous novels, which you can find translated on Wushu World, not by me, but by uh, actually the owner of Wushu World. This, the English title is Horizon Bright Moon Saber. And there is a 70s version of that novel, uh, a movie version. And the they made took some liberties with a few different things. And one of them is that the main character basically wears a poncho like the... Um, you know, the Clint Eastwood nameless mm. gunfighter guy. It looks almost exactly the same. And his sword, he actually like twirls it and then latches it onto his hip, just like you would see <laughs> a, in a Spaghetti Western flipping their revolver and putting it on their hips. That was a direct, obvious crossover. And of course, that was on the movie side. So I don't know how much it goes on to the, the, the literature side, but there are definitely a lot of crossovers. I was just watching, just a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. And... The first uh, something like, I want to say, 10 or 15 minutes of that movie really reminded me, not not in any specific, you know, sequence of events, but it really reminded me of the opening part of Seven Killers because in the opening part of Seven Killers, it's like so, like, it's so, I don't know what the right word is, but you know how it, it focuses on the guy's hat, like what's underneath the hat. And then what is his expression right. and what is he looking at? And it's like I can envision these spaghetti westerns where it's like it's focusing on their eyes and then like sweat dripping down their head and then the hand kind of like twitching toward their gun. Definitely super wusha in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Saloon 
I guess I don't know how much I'm sure that's kind of a trope in classic westerns as well as spaghetti westerns where there's tension is building and building and building someone's got their hand under the table and then it all explodes if I can flex my film studies um, education for a a sec a thing um, I did in my second year of uh, my literature degree was well film studies modules and one of them was on film genre and that's maybe one of the best film studies modules I did because one of the genres we looked at well we looked at film noir and we looked at the western and something film noir and the western have in common is that they um, had a very long and strong well actually the film noir didn't have such a long and strong golden era but westerns had a really long golden age film noir had a had like a peak of like a classic kind of a straightforward film noir uh, style film but then when both the genres started to go out of fashion a kind of more extreme cynical self-aware version came so in the case of film noirs um the very last film noirs that were made knew they were film noirs rather than accidentally accidentally being in that style and became more deranged more dark more violent and in the case of the western i suppose it was a bit more of a long slow demise so spaghetti westerns these anti-westerns came about and rather than becoming crazier accidentally they were kind of like a flipping or a subversion of like the black and white morals of the old films so they're kind of both of those things were playing a bit of a game they knew that they were playing with the genre they were kind of meta stories and i know that gu long in his writing was actively trying to do something different with wuxia um, he was trying to innovate. But like as I was reading Seven Killers, I was thinking, damn, he just keeps... There's so many things where he sets you up to think something. Like he introduces you to several big heroes at the start of the story, and then they're all killed off stage, and you realize they've been killed off stage because you're presented with their hands. And then you find out that a guy you think is a nice hero is actually a bit of a morally gr- morally grey scumbag. And thing- even just in those three opening chapters, things twisted so many times. So I, I wonder if you have an opinion. Is he playing like a meta game is he messing with the story format or do you think he was just trying to write something cool i wouldn't be surprised if it was a bit of both i mean yeah like in in the i haven't experienced this firsthand but i've talked the the novel i talked about horizon bright moon saber i've I've talked about this a lot with the guy that i co-authored that game with that i mentioned and we we have done we have a podcast uh that in which we discuss wusha movies he discusses the wusha movies constantly but me and him do it in the context of this game and we talked about this movie and this novel according to him uh gulong specifically was you know had specific character trope goals or subversion of certain goals in that novel that's just that novel i don't know about seven killers but i i do think that it's intentional i mean he wasn't just writing fun stories and i gotta point out that if that if you only got up to chapter three of seven killers then you currently have no idea what's actually going on in the story. You've got <laughs> to read not the whole thing at all. because um, the way you just described his character, it may or may not be true. I probably kind of spoiled it by just saying that. But the point is that he sets up a lot of stuff that gets subverted and you, re- you realize later on that you have no idea what's going on. And even after reading it one time, you probably are going to be like, wait a second, what was going on? And then you got to go back and read it again to kind of, if you really want to sort of piece together the puzzle pieces. So I have no idea what what he went through in his writing process for this novel, but there's no way that he just made it up as he went along. He definitely had a master plan here. And in terms of kind of turning things upside down the way that you might expect in the genre itself, I would be inclined to think, yeah, he probably was trying to do that. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised that I had no idea what the actual um, scheme behind the scheme behind the scheme was. Yeah. But I, I would, I would keep reading for sure. I was hooked. Um, speaking a little bit more about what Gulong was like as a as a person, we hinted before it was a bit ironic that someone was thinking he might be a virgin because he had a little bit of a he like he was married so many times he was clearly had a bit of a womanizing problem he also had an alcohol problem and that kind of did him in in the end um and i i noticed that leo changjie who i mean i assume i don't know he appeared to be the main character of the story for most of the three chapters i read this guy it's his um his capacity for alcohol like his uh, yeah how much booze he likes to drink and how much he can take got brought up a lot and he does some womanizing again in these three chapters i read and he doesn't really seem to suffer the consequences that gulong did i i guess the question here is a fairly obvious one do you think that gul uh, leo changjie is kind of an author insert for gulong here like an idealized version not trying to say anything too mean about the author but i just wonder if you have a perspective there uh i would say i don't know maybe maybe not because the way he's portrayed is actually i think supposed to be the typical kind of Jianghu wuxia like badass let's say because right. a lot of gulong's characters are like this um there's a novel and, and you know the heavy drinking it's not just him like that sort of drinking thing goes back in chinese literature a long time go back to yeah water margin and romance of the three kingdoms or whatever you're going to find the same kind of thing so it's not as though mm-hmm. it was necessarily unique to him um, not to harp on the game too much, but we brought in a drinking element to the game and made alcohol tolerance an actual mechanic within the game because of how much it comes up in his novels. And, you know, there's a when I know we're not talking about role playing games, but because of the popularity of Drunken Master, the the Chinese, uh, sorry, the Jackie Chan movie, a lot of people who are interested in Chinese action, let's say Chinese action movies, because there's a big difference between Kung Fu movies and Wuxia movies. But Let's just mm. say Chinese action movies. I think because of the popularity of Drunken Master, Drunken Master 2, there's this huge perception that like drunken boxing is like this big thing in Chinese martial arts and Chinese culture. I'm not saying it, it isn't, but that's not like the typical representation of how drinking works. In whether it's Gulong or even in Jin Yong novels as well, it's definitely not not common for the the xia, the the heroes to be getting super drunk. In fact, it's more likely that they can drink a whole lot and not actually be drunk. And maybe, you know, you could anal- you could psychoanalyze that whatever way that you want. But right. in the end, I think the main character of Seven Killers is more supposed to be a, that, a representation of that sort of like stereotype or trope. And I do have to point out that there's a lot more going on to the story than you might realize. And I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but the way that he's presenting himself in those first several chapters, okay, fine, spoilers, a lot of it is is more of an act than you realize, basically. So, anyway, right. yeah, I, I think that for better or for worse, that sort of heavy drinking, uh, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say womanizing is one of the, one of the things that's looked, that, that's, what's the word I'm looking for? romanticized i don't i don't necessarily think that womanizing itself is romanticized in the in the novels but the drinking definitely is for sure okay good answer i think that is that yeah that was all my questions i had there about seven killers 
Um, is there anything it, I feel like I've, we've only scratched the surface of it as a story, given how in depth we got into other general genre things. Um, I, I'll, I'll think of another question on the fly here. Um, what do you think is the coolest thing about Seven Killers, or what are some things that you like about it, just personally? So as I get older, I am less and less interested in action and fighting, especially when it comes to the wuxia stuff, whether it's the movies or the novels. I'm more interested in the characters, the story, and the dialogue and whatnot. In fact, when I watch a lot of wuxia movies nowadays, um, for the instance, for the other podcasts I do, I tend to fast forward through a lot of the fight scenes, to be honest, because I just... It's I've seen so many and they don't particularly interest me. I, I, I it's funny because I've seen people on Twitter say things like Wusha is really good for the fight scenes and choreography, but that's about it or something along those lines. And I'm like, what? For me, it's, it's like the opposite of that. And this is this novel is definitely like that. For example, in the first, let's see, three chapters, there isn't really any fight scene per se. I mean, there's a couple clashes and there's some people that get killed, like you mentioned a bunch of people get killed off screen. There's a fight, another fight scene where he gets beat up that happens off screen. So really, the action elements are not part of it. I really like the interesting and unique characters. I love the dialogue. His dialogue is so hilarious where people will be going back and forth, almost like quipping back and forth. And then there's always some twist in the dialogue. And I just... I was reading more of it this morning and I was just laughing, not at it, but just laughing because I, I feel like it's so interesting and cool to hear these super powerful guys talking back and forth. And, you know, they'll say it, it'll be something like, you know, it, there's always he uh, he takes care with his dialogue. So it's hard. I don't think I could make it up on the fly, but it'll be something like, you know, I came here to kill you. And then he'll be like, well, did you come here to kill me or to be killed? Well, I came here not to be. I don't need, see. I can't even do it, but. It's so snappy and, and fun and interesting. I think that's one of the highlights of reading his stuff. Yeah, it's quite braggadocious. I, I got the feeling in the bits I read, the characters were like testing each other or trying to get one over on each other as they were talking in often like a humorous way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, for sure. In fact, okay, this is the last time I'm going to bring up the game, but <laughs> we basically included that in the game as well because we wanted to emulate less of the, you know, back and forth combat and more of the drama and so we actually included a, a section where the characters are supposed to engage in this kind of banter dialogue thing and it again this is not just a seven killers thing his novels a lot of his novels are like that where you have these witty back and forth conversations a lot of times involving wordplay but in the in a way that usually is easy to convey in the translation in english not always but usually mm, yeah um i suppose that's something this is totally going on, on a cliche but there's a, did you ever play a video game called uh, Monkey Island? <laughs> that, my friend, is one of my major influences as a young kid. I played Monkey Island 1, 2, 3, I forget how many there were. Yeah, I definitely played those. And you're talking about the sword fighting insult part? Yeah, yeah um, sword fighting entirely powered by insults, like yeah. swash, swashbuckle <laughs> banter. So again, I was talking about the experience of how, um, oh gosh, what Dragon Ball Z reached me growing up in Scotland. Uh, the Monkey Island games did reach us over in the UK, but I think the first time was someone made one of the swashbuckling scenes into a Flash game online. So I saw that really? as a teenager. And then years later, they made um, someone made the Monkey Island games into apps on the iTunes store. And my, my wee brother bought the first one, then the second one, then the third one. Then I was constantly nicking the um, I What were they called? I, what was I? An iTouch? 
It's been so long, but yeah, yeah whatever that Apple device was, I was nicking his eye touch so I could play Monkey Island. Yeah, the, the, I was raised on those kind of games, so I def- and definitely that whole insult sword finding was. I loved that part. So yeah. Yeah, well, I guess in the, this Gulong story, it's more like people trade insults and then they do their one or two hit fight and then one of them falls over dead or gets incapacitated. I think the underlying sort of idea behind it is that they're trying to sort of intimidate or you know to gain an advantage by intimidating their opponent or something along those lines, you know, because he, I think, is definitely has has a style of fighting where some of it is psychological. In fact, I know that because in in the one of the novels I translated, Heroes Shed No Tears, there's a whole part where basically one of the main one of the two main characters. I th- I would say there's two, maybe three or four. Anyway, one of the main characters, the good guy, is set to go into this duel, and the duel is against the top hero, or the you know let's just say the top fighter. Uh, of the age but it's questionable as to who's going to win because this main character is actually very 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 good and so the advisor to this great hero essentially creates this entire manipulated scenario of psychological warfare to cause this main character to have a, a stunning emotional blow that gets him off of his game basically and so because of that he goes into mm. the fight distraught distracted you know um, depressed basically and then because of that well he doesn't lose because somebody saves him but he definitely doesn't win and I think the implication was that psychological warfare worked out perfectly so I think that for Gulong a lot of the fighting and the, the lead up to the fighting is, is psychological and, and that's more important than the actual moves of going back and forth with the swords or the you know kung fu or whatever you know the only sport i was ever particularly good at at a competitive level was tennis and for there was two or, two or three summers when i would um go around with the other kids from my tennis team to other um other tennis courts in the tayside and angus region of scotland and we'd take on other teenagers from other teams and my psychological warfare tactic was just being really polite and never showing any frustration and smiling. And I, sometimes the other player would be equally polite and it would all be fine. Other times they would want to do like the aggression psych outs. And the best counter I found was just a friendly smile every time you won a point. And <laughs> then they'd get yep. even more off their game. Yep, yep. So we've, I think we've kind of exhausted talking about seven killers given that I did only read an opening portion. So now I'd like to get technical since you are after all a translator so um let's talk about the very first piece of translation one does um the title well maybe this wasn't the first thing you did but a very first order thing is finding an english title from the chinese title so your english title is seven killers which sounds i have to say like it's a really snappy modern sounding title from a story that's from quite a few decades ago from a very different language. So what is what is the Chinese title and how literal is your English uh, translated version of it? Well, this is a complicated topic in the in terms of Seven Killers, not so complicated because it was a pretty simple and direct forward translation. When I was originally reading the novel and then going into translating it, I looked online to see what people were calling it because a lot of the translations of a lot of his novels, even if they're not translated, have had the titles translated or yeah. their movies. Um, I don't think there's any movie of this, but when I was doing my research, everybody was calling it Seven Assassins. But when you read, because Shasho, in Chinese it's Qi Shasho, Shasho 
is often translated as assassin. And so I think that's a, a fair translation if you don't know what the story's about and it sounds cool. But when you read the story, it's obvious the reference is not to any kind of assassins. Basically, the antagonist has seven fugitives, basically, that are working for her as guards. And they're not assassins. They're basically just killers. And so there's seven killers. Now, I it, later on, I came to the realization that there could be some more complexity to this because Tisha uh, is also its own word. And I now that I think about it, I'm wondering if there's maybe some more wordplay in there that I missed. But I, I don't think so because the story is fairly straightforward in terms of the setup. And the setup is the main character, Liu Changjie, having to deal with, as part of his heist, these seven dangerous people who are killers. Now, in terms of, of other titles, sometimes it's not so easy because, you know, you have to translate Chinese characters into English grammar sometimes. For instance, one of my later translations, I ended up calling Dragon King with seven stars. But in Chinese, it's Qi Xing Long Wang, which is literally seven stars Dragon King. And so mm -hmm. it could be, you know, seven star Dragon King. I ended up switching it to Dragon King with seven stars because there is an, there is a sort of wordplay explanation for why it's called that later on in the novel. And in subsequent things that I translated, a lot of times it's very difficult to translate the title. For instance, with the cultivation novels, well, I, 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 we really shouldn't be calling them novels. When I say we, I just mean in general, because they're not novels, they're series. I mean, you know, like 1,600 chapters, 1,500 chapters are definitely series, not really novels. But yeah. anyway, the point is that... It, it's ironic people call them the, light novels. <laughs> Yeah, Given how yeah. huge they are. They're huge. So, in any case, th there are oftentimes wordplay explanations for the titles that you'll find later, deeper on. And so, with those, sometimes it can be very difficult to translate them. There's a lot of of the titles right now that are that are pretty popular, maybe even still being translated, where the translators started working on them before the novels were complete, and so the actual translations of the uh, of the series is basically wrong because they didn't really know what the explanation was when they started translating it. So those in those situations, it's hard. I think for Seven Killers, I happened to just get it pretty easy because it was a short novel. I was able to read the whole thing before translating it, and the explanation was pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Now, a minute ago, I said there was something I'd forgotten. Uh, I wanted to mention, but I'd forgotten what it was. Um, but it's such a... I don't know if listeners will find this interesting, but I'd I really want to share this. Um, did you ever watch uh, Lost? Yes, I watched it from... I watched the whole thing. Although I can't claim to remember every single detail, but yes, I did watch it. Yeah, so I've, I've introduced my girlfriend to it and she's hooked and we're powering through it and I'm noticing the odd thing I didn't notice before, uh, having watched it all at least once. Um, I noticed a pattern in the dialogue. I don't know whether it's intentional or if one of the writers just had this tendency, but there'll often be a thing where one character is trying to get another character to do, to do something and they'll usually pull it off by they'll they'll give like a list of reasons or a description of a situation and then they'll say and that's why you're gonna blah 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 jack so like you're i know that you uh couldn't keep your marriage together with your wife and i know that you're a wretch and that's why you're gonna push that button jack that was the formula and with some kinds of film or literature if it's trying to be i don't know literary then repetition like that is a bad thing. But I feel like a magic of um, genre, genre fiction or genre TV is the patterns part of the fun. So the reason I'm bringing this up is when we were talking about, you were trying to describe the pattern of Gulong's dialogue, 
it's not because it's bad, it's because it's part of the fun that you've got this pattern that you, the, the reader, can kind of recognize and enjoy. So yeah, I wanted to get that off my chest because it's literally something I noticed described to my girlfriend and she was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's nice, but we're in lockdown, so there's no one else to tell. <laughs> that's interesting. I can't say that I noticed that in Lost, but it definitely makes sense. And yeah, I think your assessment of it is right. And the cool thing is about that dialogue stuff is that sometimes in the movie versions of these novels, the you know, a lot of things get changed, but they sometimes will almost directly lift the dialogue. So you can kind of see that stuff get played out by the actors. And I think that adds another level of, of fun to it. Mm, yeah. But um, getting back to translation, I'm sorry about that self-indulgent thread. By the way, if you do rewatch any loss, just watch out for a character saying, and that's why you're going to blah, 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 because you won't be able to unhear it now that you know. <laughs> but um, I'll keep that in yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you if Gulong is an easy writer to translate compared with other writers whose stories that you've worked to translate. I would say yes. Um, I've never translated Jin Yong, but like I mentioned before, when I tried to read it, it was a little bit too complicated. One of the things that, that's very nice about him, you know, I don't know the process that he went through in, in his writing in terms of in terms of the editing, rewriting, and proofreading. But there's definitely a difference between uh, a writer writing a novel to write a novel as opposed to the web fiction things where a huge factor is the number of characters that go into it. In other words, the authors of the web novels, they have to meet a quota per chapter in order to get paid a certain amount. Generally, 3,000 Chinese characters from, what, from my understanding to get the, the normal pay for their chapters. And what that leads to is a lot of a lot of stream of consciousness writing, a lot of extra padding <laughs> right. and filler. Um, and in the case of the series I'm writing now, the author, I can you know I can't guarantee it, but I'm I would bet money that there are many parts that I could identify where he basically wrote his chapter was short, several hundred characters. So he went back and was like, oh, I'll just add some details here, and he throws in stuff that has literally nothing to do with the flow of the narrative. And so it breaks up the flow of the narrative, but he does it because he has to add the content. That in itself, that element makes the web translation much, much harder. At least for me, if I turned my mind off and just translated it directly, I could do that, but I, I can't make myself do that. So I- It's like the, the conscience the getting in the way. What? Your literary conscience holding you back. Yeah, it's just I can't make myself do it. So I, I, I edit the novels significantly. I don't change any of the content or I don't change what happens, but I remove the unnecessary filler and I tweak things to make it a little bit better. For Goulon, I didn't really have to do that at all. Now that I think about it, I, you know, going back and reading it these past couple of days, I realized that there are some stiff parts to the translation and whatnot, but what is on the page is very, very accurate to his writing style and what he wrote. And so because of that, I would say definitely easier to translate his stuff. And another easy, another element that make, made it a little bit easier is he, because he relies so much on the characters, the character growth, the character interaction, the, the, the drama and, and the poetic descriptions and stuff, and not on intricate wordplay or philosophical elements, that element, that, that makes it a lot easier to translate too. With the Xianxia cultivation stuff, a lot of the novels throw in, a lot of the authors throw in, you know, Taoist, the quotes from like real Taoist texts, real Buddhist texts, 
real poems and different things like that. And then they'll link that in wordplay to the techniques. And that makes it very challenging to translate. And, you know, again, Gulong doesn't have those elements as much. So I definitely think he's a little bit easier to translate in the terms in terms of general difficulty. And so for anybody out there that is starting to get into this uh, language learning thing, and if they're interested in being a translator, I definitely would recommend, you know, finding one of his books that is untranslated. There are still a lot of them out there. It's definitely a great place to start in terms of reading and also trying your hand out at translating. That's reminded me actually, um, when I was first looking at a Baoshu's fan fiction sequel to Three Body Problem. So the English title it has now is The Redemption of Time. <clears throat> but I believe that's actually the second English title it had. It's had the first English title was uh, a translation of the Chinese one because the Chinese one has nothing to do with uh, Redemption of Time. the The first English title it had was Era of Contemplation. Um, but a literal translation from Chinese would have been like Contemplating the Universe. And if I if I remember correctly, even that's not quite perfectly saying what the original Chinese title was saying, because the contemplating part, I think it was Guanxian or Guanxiang or something, which was like a Buddhist term, like a, some sort of Buddhist-inflected reflection or contemplation, which you would really need some cultural knowledge to know as well as just the language knowledge. And like I was saying, that that book is or that yeah that book started out as as a web novel. So again, another parallel between that sci-fi book and from what you've told me about uh, Xianxia novels. So that that's really interesting. I'm just going to point out that because of the um, way the web novel, specifically like cdn.com is obviously the biggest um, publishing platform, they let anybody put anything on there. So you're gonna, you will find fan fictions of just about anything from Naruto to World of Warcraft. And if it's good enough and people like it and they start upvoting it and whatnot, then it can become you know, quote unquote, mainstream sort of. And so that's interesting that, you know, three body problem. I, when you originally mentioned it, I'd, I was guessing that that's what it was. And it seems to me that that's the case. So it, it has good sides and bad sides. The good side, I guess, being that, you know, there's a the potential to have some, some great content. I mean, I heard, you know, I, there's an unofficial uh, Harry Potter uh, follow up, I think that people have talked to me about, which I never checked out. I don't know how that was originally published, but Anyways, again, I'm kind of veering off topic here. The, the Harry Potter one is in Chinese on Chidian. No, I'm talking. No, sorry. I see. I'm 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 kind of jumping oh, right. around from topic to topic. There's an English version, unofficial Harry Potter ah. follow up, but I don't know because because there's web fiction, you know, in the West as well nowadays on Wattpad and Royal Road and whatever other websites. But I, I'm not sure where originally this Harry Potter spinoff was from. But I've had a, I did a video on my channel where I basically binge read Harry Potter over the course of a couple months for the first time and then did a video about it. And I had a couple people mention this follow-up and how good it was and whatnot. Oh yeah, I could, um, I mean, I, I haven't read an awful lot of Western web fiction, but I definitely know enough to do a podcast episode on it because it's a crazy, strange world. Um, but yeah, what, what you were saying about there being lots of different fanfics out there and it being not too surprising there's three-body sequels. Um, I'm pretty sure it was in the afterword uh, in the edition I read, the English edition, where Bao Shu wrote about his experience of uh, writing this sequel because he was in Belgium at the time studying. He was at university in Belgium when Death's End, the third uh, and final installation of Three Body, came out. 
and his friend uh, Scandal the paid. Uh, was it scans or photos? I don't know, but either his friend either photographed or scanned all the pages and sent it but as images or PDFs to Bao Shu, and then he proceeded to read this massive book extremely quickly. And I think he says in the afterward he knew that if he wanted his fanfic sequel to go anywhere and not vanish, he had to be the first out the gate and first published. So as well as it being good, well, be, writing a really good fan fiction sequel wouldn't be good enough. He needed it to get it out there before all the other ones because even if it was the best one if it was the 10th one to be published it would just vanish because there was going inevitably there would be so many three body sequels because three body was so popular in china so one reason we're able to read that in english is because he knew (laughs) he knew there was going to be competition so he just operated at lightning speed to be yeah that makes sense yeah but yeah let's get back to um uh, seven killers i've got my last question here about translation were there any particularly like interesting linguistic problems you hit upon while you were trying to translate it any thing that acquired a little bit of problem solving or creative thinking yeah i mean uh, and if you if you go through and read it i this was my first translation so i was very meticulous about it and i noted all of those things so i Mm. if, if i deviated at all from the Chinese, whether it was like on the level of an idiom or something, then I put a footnote and explained it. And it's been years and I haven't gone through to reread it in terms of of your question. So I I don't think I can come up with anything off the top of my head, except I do remember there was an expression in the first chapter. And, you know, I actually have the first chapter in Chinese, but it it would take me to, it it would be too hard for me to track down the specific part. But there was something... There was a like an expression that made really perfect sense in Chinese. I thought, again, this, this is off the top of my head, and I haven't thought about this for years. But in Chinese, it said something along the lines of like these guys were going to go up the stairs. But the the implication was if they stepped on the stairs, then they or if they like they stepped on the stairs, but if they kept walking, then they were going to die. And in in Chinese, it was a weird expression, something like. Like the, if they had a bowl of rice, there was already half of a fish in the bowl of rice. It was something really <laughs> weird. I can't remember. And I ended up transiting, translating that something along the lines of they already had one foot in the grave, or something along those lines. Right. Um, there were a few things like that. And over the years, you know, now I've translated millions of Chinese characters of of content. That's obviously something I come across and have to deal with on a daily basis. And it just depends on. For me nowadays, it depends on the situation. Nowadays, I actually do like to translate the idioms directly if they can make sense. I've done some polls of readers on this subject. And the vast majority of readers, at least in my readership, they actually like to have a direct translation instead of the interpretation, as long as it sort of like makes sense. You know, like instead of saying it was really, it was as hard to find as a a needle in a haystack, the direct translation would be, it was as hard to find as one hair on nine oxen. Mm-hmm. You get the idea based on the direct translation, and a lot of people really like to have that sort of sort of direct, you know, insight into what the Chinese language is like. But yeah. I would say in this translation, that was the hardest thing I had to deal with was um, the idioms and the expressions that don't come across when translated directly, and then trying to figure out how. The second thing was there's a, and I, I noted this in the footnote. The main character, Liu Changjie, has a, a female, uh, there's a female character that he interacts with, and they have a couple different conversations where there's some really heavy, con- like, culturally contextual wordplay, 
and that was really hard to come to, to get right. And if I remember correctly, I, I took some liberties with that and then put the direct translation into footnotes. Um, it's really hard to get to make the decision when you're translating, at least in my opinion, it's hard to decide where to which side to lean on. Do you lean on being more accurate, but then the reader doesn't understand? Or do you lean on being less accurate, but the reader understands it more easily? It's a that's the line that the translators have to kind of walk no matter what which way they go. Right. Yeah, I, the one that stuck in my mind, and I only know about this because you, you footnoted it, it was a case where a particular kind of shoe, I think it was, was being described, and you, yeah, the only tabby word... Shoes. Tabby, yeah, so we have the word for it in English, and it's a loan word from Japanese, and the same like the same kind of shoe is uh, existent in China and there's a Chinese word for it, but the word reached us from Japanese, so it makes sense to put the Japanese word into the translation of Chinese, as strange as that might seem. Yeah, plus if I remember correctly, that part is in a poem. So like, if it was a character that, like, if it was in Chinese and it basically said, he pulled on his tabby socks, I might say he pulled on his socks, which had, you know, one big toe and an adjoining four toe opening. I don't know, I, I, I might, yeah. instead of using tabby, describe it or something. But you can't really do that in a poem. So no, you, you are pretty much forced poetic to Japanese license. or something yeah. that nobody's going to recognize. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I think we, we, we've been talking quite a long time here. So we can probably move on to the section that I dub miscellaneous questions. So in every episode, we have an institution, the, the word of the day. So I wonder, could you pick out a particularly appropriate um, word of the day? Um, for the listeners, and then we can, uh, well, <laughs> then we can teach them it if they don't already know it. So I'm going to go with the word. It is a very simple word, but I think it requires some sort of commentary, and that is the word "jiu." So "jiu" is the word for alcohol. Mm. Uh, we talked about it quite a bit um, throughout the conversation. You know, Gulong was very much an alcoholic, and you know, in Chinese culture, that's not as much of a negative thing you know a lot of people are heavy drinkers and it's not really generally looked down upon and his characters tend to be heavy drinkers as well now the thing is that jiu uh, is oftentimes translated as wine so this was my first translation and i did translate it as wine in this in this in seven killers later on in my translating career i have veered away from using the word wine for jiu because the reason and the reason being that Especially for the average Western reader, wine has a very specific connotation, that being grape wine. And grape wine is not something that people in China would drink historically. It's more popular nowadays. Yeah, I have a whole video about this on YouTube, by the way. But the point is just that jiu will oftentimes be referring to hard liquor, not necessarily um, any kind of wine. Now, if you want to talk historically speaking... Throughout most of Chinese history, the common beverage to drink in terms of alcohol would, in terms of alcohol, would be yellow wine, which is not grape wine, but it is a similar in that it's something like twenty percent alcohol. Huangjiu, but what right? Gulong liked to drink was not that. He was a baijiu drinker. So right. baijiu is the character for white, and then the character for alcohol. Now, sadly, some character, some translators will translate that as white wine, but it is anything but white wine. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't um, want to drink a wine glass of it. No. Uh, but but I and so I talk about this in the video on YouTube. There it's 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 hard to say unless it's specifically stated what 
he envisioned his characters to be drinking. But there are occasions when he actually names the type of alcohol they are drinking. Uh, sometimes it's not by Joe, but sometimes it is. And so in the end of this little uh, speech, I'm going to say that I usually translate Joe as alcohol because I think it's more accurate uh, as opposed to wine, which could be accurate or could maybe not be accurate depending on what specific beverage they are consuming. So that's yeah. my word for the day, Joe, which is alcohol or wine, depending on how you want to translate it. And I've definitely had some Baijiu that was almost just pure alcohol. It's pretty rough stuff, some of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my father-in-law, so my wife is Chinese, my father-in-law is, is Chinese, and he is a big Baijiu drinker. I mean, as far as I know, he drinks Baijiu for lunch and dinner every single day, maybe sometimes for breakfast. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but there are good types and there are bad types. And I have had the bad types. And I have had, I have gotten hung over on the bad types to the point where I think maybe it was alcohol poisoning. I'm not really sure. And that is not fun. Uh, but there are expensive versions and, and good versions that are actually very, very good if you can develop the taste for them. But yeah, if you're unfamiliar with it and you go to China and you try the, you know, Arguato, like red and blue and white bottle or something along those lines, it's, it's probably not going to be a fun experience your first time around. Yeah, um, I played that prank when my parents visited me in China. It was a fun one. <laughs> what you were saying about the mistranslation of Joe, that I had, I have two fairly anecdote, fairly good anecdotes uh, from my first year in China about that. One's based on uh, re real life experiences I had. Another was based on watching uh, TV in China. So the the real life one was uh, so I was working for this wee school in. A small town in Zhejiang province, and we, uh, I, I would be brought along with the Chinese staff uh, for like the monthly or maybe maybe it was quarterly staff meals, and the drinks on the table would be uh, there'd be coconut milk for the non booze uh, drinkers. There would be uh, red wine, like grape wine. There would, and then there would be baijiu, and then maybe some beer. But your alcohol choices were, uh, yeah, so red wine. And Baijiu. So you can see the um, the disaster waiting to happen here for like the newbie in China and the um, the the Chinese English teachers who had a very good command of English, but maybe not the exposure to Western drinking culture. So that when they were asking me, "Do you want some uh, red wine or white wine?" <laughs> and I said, "I oh, just one time for variety." I was like, "Hey, white wine, please." And then it gets served in a little shot glass, and I'm like, mm -hmm, "What's this?" And then. You know, a few weeks later, when you find out what Baijiu is, it all it all makes sense. <laughs> and yeah, that sounds like a, a familiar story. In my case, I made the mistake. So you know, getting into the culture and the language with the background of Wuxia kind of hanging over me, I made it a point to learn a lot of alcohol-related um, language. You know, inter you know, drinking language and idioms and whatnot. And there's a, so you know, uh, since you were in China, you know that um, ganbei basically means to drain your glass. Yes. And so there's a really common expression. Now, I do not recommend this to anybody who is not a very experienced drinker. And even if you are an ex experienced drinker, you got to be very careful about using this in China. Um, so what I, what one of the expressions I learned that I would use a lot is waganla ni suayi. So waganla means I will ganbei, I will, I will uh, finish my glass ni suayi means you do whatever you want and the implication mm. is i will finish my glass but you don't need to finish your glass 
and the implication is because you're not of you're not as good of a drinker as me and so <laughs> When you use that on Chinese guys that are drinking baijiu, <laughs> it's a borderline insult. And they'll, they'll, like, they don't get mad, but they'll, they take it as a challenge. To like, oh, really? So you, the foreigner, can outdrink me, and then, then it's on. And so you have to be very careful. Yeah, the PE teachers at that school were a bit like that. And some of the parents who came along for the meals, they were weirdly aggressive, some of the dads. Um the second anecdote I had, this one is almost more amusing. It was watching the CC, you know, the so CCTV, like the, the Chinese state broadcaster has a lot of channels. I mean, at least when I was there, they had one that was called CCTV English, I think. And it yeah. was like a 24 hour, um, or was it 24 hour? It was like a constant uh, news channel, but it was like their international one. So you got some really interesting, strange niche reporting. Um, and but a lot of it was done by seemingly like semi-professional reporter, uh, reporters. There was a lot of strange stilted language, so it's really interesting viewing. But like I said, there was lots of interesting things that you just wouldn't get on a more normal news channel. Um, one of them was they had some wine growers on who were either growing in China or selling for the Chinese market, and there was a little bit of a um, nice non-political report about like. The, the habits in China, drinking habits, the, the, you know, the new, newly rich middle class buying more red wine, drinking more red wine and so on. And it was all pretty normal. And then like near the end, the host of the show asked one of their foreign guests, she, she started a question by saying, there are lots of stories in the old um, Chinese poets classics of drinking, sharing a cup of wine together. Do you think your wine imports can bring back this culture of drinking wine? And it's like, well, obviously like, Li Bai wasn't drinking red wine made from grapes. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but the poor guest probably didn't even know what to make of the question, regardless of how schooled she was on the classics. So she was like, well, maybe. And then that was the end of the program. <laughs> I can only imagine. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope it's on YouTube somewhere. Probably not. It'll be in their archive somewhere. Um, yeah. yeah uh, on to the next question, which is weirdly on the same theme. Um, if Seven Killers was a drink, what drink would it be? And I guess would it be if it's if it's not Baijiu, is it Huangjiu? If it's not Huangjiu, is it Baijiu? I mean, I would say in honor of Gulong, definitely Baijiu, and especially because it's such a short and sort of like wham bam, thank you ma'am, novel. He, he has some long long series and novels with recurring characters and but this is almost a novelette I think and it, it it's it's uh it's hard and hot just like a shot of Baijiu so definitely Baijiu the only question would be which brand uh, I know that uh, Gulong had his favorite brands but um for me personally the one that I've gotten used to the most is Lujo which is what my father-in-law would drink a lot so by extension me and I've kind of gotten used to it and so yeah, that's what I would I would say a, a nice um, healthy portion of Lujo brand Baijiu. Mm. I, I it just occurred to me just just right now. So Gulong was born in Hong Kong and then moved to Taiwan. I think when he was a teenager. Do you know if there are any Taiwanese Baijiu's? Oh yeah, I'm sure I, there are. I don't. I'm not very familiar with them, but there definitely are. I mean, anywhere that there's Chinese people, I think there's gonna eventually be some kind of homegrown Baijiu. I mean, even mm you know, the place where I lived in China was not exactly a huge city and it had multiple different local baijos. And my uh, father-in-law, you know, managed to track down people brewing baijo in the, you know, the Mao, Mao Thai is basically the, the 
most famous expensive brand, but it, it comes from a region in China, which is famous for, you know, Baijiu, and they'll have different versions of Mao Tai. And so he found one brewed by the, by people with the same surname as him, you know, the family surname. Uh, mm. So anyway, I, I can't say for certain what they are, but I would, I would imagine that there are definitely brands of Taiwanese and Hong Kong Baijiu. Well, I guess here's a place for the listeners to, to reach out. If you guys are screaming yeah. the answer into your, um, well, your smartphone devices uh, or into the air. Uh, yeah, listen to the links and whatnot I give you in the plugs and you can reach out to myself and Jeremy and school us in Taiwanese Baijiu. Um, yeah, I would love to know what the Taiwanese Baijiu is. Yes. So speaking of that, um, are you working on anything right now that you'd like to self-promo? It might perhaps be a tabletop game or, or anything else you can point the listeners towards. Yeah, that's. I think that's probably what I'd like to mention the most because it's most relevant uh to this discussion, uh, as I mentioned, we, me and uh, Brendan from Bedrock Games, have been working on this game for about two years now, and it's been it's uh, published by Osprey Games, so it's a it's a legit big game publisher. And the source book at this point, I'm not certain because you know they can kind of tweak things with the page layout, but it's going to be something around like 250 uh, pages, something along along those lines. It has a bunch of original art that we all directed, not directed, but me and Brendan, he's more of a aficionado of the movies and I have the translating and a culture background. We have something like 40 illustrations, beautiful art uh, by a very experienced artist named Kagan McLeod. And it comes with a built-in adventure module. And we didn't get too much in, I didn't mention this before, but you know, we were talking earlier about how Gulong likes to like, subvert the expectations of the audience, like have twists and turns the built-in adventure module that we have, def- it tries to emulate that uh, by putting the characters into a uh, an escort situation. So the escort job is a big wuxia trope uh, where they're supposed to take an important thing from destination A to location, sorry, from location A to destination B, and then twists and turns happen along the way. Uh, so again, that's coming out in October from Osprey Games. It's currently available for pre-order on Amazon right now and also barnesandnoble.com. And I think wherever you can buy books online, for the most part, it's already there. So the name is Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. And yeah, check it out on Amazon. Order it for pre-sale before you forget, and then you'll get it as soon as it comes out. And um, in terms of my other translations, if you go to my website, which is jeremybuy.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y-B-A-I.com. I have links there to all of my works, including Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, the game, and then all of the translations that I've mentioned, uh, and even some that I didn't mention. They're all there in either links or downloads you can get on my website. Mm. And you've mentioned your YouTube a few times. I mean, I'm sure we can find that pretty easily via your website or by sticking Jeremy Buy or Deathblade into YouTube. Is, is there anything the listeners should know about that or do they know everything? They uh, need to yeah, know? just uh, youtube.com slash deathblade is the channel. And I have my, the main the main type of video I, I do talks about Chinese fantasy novels. I have something like about 50 videos addressing all sorts of different topics. I talk about Chinese culture a little bit here and there as well. So youtube.com slash deathblade, all sorts of resources there for people who are interested in getting into it and sort of understanding some of the more difficult aspects culturally or language wise. Yeah. That's something I should do. I I went through a a phase, I think it was towards the end of uni. So I would have been about 21 where I would, um, usually I'd be playing some silly game on my laptop or, uh, or, or even back home on the, the old family Xbox. 
but I would have the gate that all the sound from the the game turned off, and I'd be listening to some uh, very enlightening, like like a university lecture or or a, an explainer or something, just off the audio on YouTube. And then I resurrected that hobby recently. Yeah, this is minor is basically yeah. talking head stuff, so it's Perfect. definitely good for that. Yeah, I I resurrected the hobby recently because I got an uh, I don't know what you'd call one of these, like a YouTube client that can turn it's got a button and it can play only the audio of any video no problem so i was bringing that that habit back oh. and learning lots of things in my downtime and then the app stopped working god damn it so i need to find a replacement <laughs> well what can you do yeah i will find a replacement for sure but yeah um uh, that's that's our miscellaneous questions so now let's point the listeners to maybe some further reading um you've told them where to where they can read your uh translated wuxia and stuff but if they just want to get into wuxia reading wuxia specifically online i think we've had a few pointers peppered throughout the episode but where's like a really good first stop where they could go looking for this stuff well you're gonna you have basically two options which is looking for official licensed uh professional translations that's going to be, you don't have much to pick from, to be honest. Um, if you go to mm. my website and you kind of click around, I have a link to an Amazon storefront I created in which I basically compiled all of the professional license Wuxia translations that I recommend on one in one location. So if you are able to do some sleuthing, go to my website, find my Amazon storefront, and you can find them. Otherwise, you can just simply go to Amazon and type in Wuxia novel and start clicking around and try to find them. There are not very many. There's basically The Deer and the Cauldron, The Book and the Sword, 11. Those are by Jin Yong, but he went, he did them under a, a pseudonym of Louis Cha, or that's his English name or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Condor Heroes translation yeah. is currently being released. I, you know, I have mixed feelings about the Connor Heroes translation, but that is an official licensed translation. There are also some Gulong novels, such as uh, The Eleventh Sun that you can get on Amazon, Fox Bull Under the Snowy Mountain. That's pretty much it, as far as I'm aware of. Uh, so if you want to go expand beyond that, then your best bet is to go to the spcnet.tv forums that I mentioned earlier. If you go down to the Wuxia Translations sub-forum, the the top-pinned post is actually by me from several years ago. I kind of want to update it or actually remove it because I haven't been active on that forum for a really long time. But it's still there, and it has links to numerous completed fan translations of Jinyong and Gulong books. So until somebody gets around to licensing them and uh, translating them officially, that's going to be the best bet to enjoy some of those works. Cool. Do you know an author called Tang Chi? It doesn't ring a bell. Because I think, um, I don't know if this is a modern work of Wuxia or something older, but um, one of Amazon Crossing's translated Chinese books is some sort of a Wuxia book. It's called To the Sky Kingdom. Yeah, no, you're right. I've heard about, I have heard about that, but I don't know too much about it. Yeah, I do know. I have heard about it, yeah. Yeah, the, the translator is Poppy Toland, I believe, who's, she, yeah, I've done, uh, one of the stories she's translated on the show before, which is a very different sort of story. It's um, an avant-garde, um, like literary novella sort of thing called Flock of Brown Birds. And that the language that was rendered in was absolutely beautiful. I mean, I suppose a, a wuxia novel is a totally different kettle of fish, but um, I'd imagine if Amazon Crossing have got their hands on it, they, they seem to be fairly competent and 
from what I gather, she's a great translator. So that's one. Yeah, I've, I've, I know the translation yeah. you're talking about with the flock of birds or whatever. I'm pretty sure I, I, if, if that's the one I'm thinking about, I mm. have read that, but I haven't read this other one that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, was, I was just, when you said Amazon, I think that's where my little Amazon crossing knowledge part of my brain lit up. But anyway, um, next question I have for you, and the last question actually, is what are you reading just now? <laughs> well, it's actually funny you ask. I am in the middle of reading The Witcher. I have yeah. read, let's see, there's like two prequel books and then the uh, the main trilogy you can get, and then now I'm on to book four of the primary trilogy. So I guess that means I'm six books in. Um, I watched the show and I really liked it, and then my brother... It picked up the game he's a big gamer and he really liked the game and so i kind of was interested in seeing what the actual story was all about so for the past couple of months that's what i've been reading and like i mentioned before i there are chinese things that i need to read but i just can't make myself sit down and read them after translating and working for eight or nine hours a day six days a week on that stuff yeah i, I don't think anyone would blame you is the witcher book good yeah, it's it's really good. There are certain things about it that I don't necessarily love, but overall, it's great. It's been a long time since I've read kind of a good, just you know, epic fantasy sword and sorcerer, sword and sorcery fantasy kind of thing. That's what I really loved back when I was the most voracious reader in high school, and so it's fun to get back into something that has you know swords and elves and and wizards and sorcerers and whatnot it's it's really fun but at the same time it's a lot more mature than some of the more lighthearted stuff that i think i read as a younger one so I, so nowadays i i enjoy it maybe even more than i would have back then so i would definitely recommend it to anybody who hasn't uh, even if you haven't read the the even if you haven't watched the show or played the game i mean those two things the game and the show came from the books to begin with so Definitely go back to the source. It's really, really well translated because it's, I'm not sure if you were aware, it's originally not an English language novel or series. Very well translated and really a good read. Yeah. Is it from somewhere in the Slavic world? Is that... Yeah. It's, it's, it's originally in Polish is my understanding. Right. Cool. And what you were saying about being the most voracious reader when you were a teen. So... When I finished my undergrad degree, I was thinking my a lot of people in my year group's kind of way of thinking was fantastic. We can read for fun again. We can go back to being just hedonistic <laughs> readers, reading for the joy of reading. And years on, I realized, well, to some extent, yes, but to some extent, that innocence is lost forever. Now I'm podcasting about books and most of the books I'm reading are just going in the like the bank. They're being deposited into the future podcast episode bank, which yep. is is fun. But the dream of getting the innocence of reading without any self-awareness of the bigger picture of things, I think it is just a dream of lost innocence for me now. <laughs> I don't know how you feel. Well, for me, maybe even more so. You know, I'm, I'm getting up there in years. I'm married. I have, uh, have a, a four-year-old and I have another little one on the way. Uh, and so even when I do have a chance to sit down, it's like, if I'm sitting down and reading, there's always something on the back of my mind, you know, whether it's, oh man, in 40 minutes, it's going to be shower time for <laughs> the four-year-old or, you know, in a month, we're going to have another crying mouth to feed, all those different things. It's hard to kind of sit down and, and just enjoy uh, a novel when there's always something on the back of your mind. But I, I do manage to, I do manage it somehow. Like I said, I've gotten through almost six Witcher books in the past few months, so a uh, little bit here, a little bit there. I'm get, I'm making some progress. Yeah. Well, I guess what we can both make a mission 
for ourselves to do is cultivate our immortality, distort time so we can unlock more time to cultivate our minds through books, and that that should help mitigate these these problems. There you go. I'm all in for that. Absolutely. And on that note, I guess I should say thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for literally teaching me lots of interesting things and hopefully giving the listeners lots to think about, lots of entry points to wuxia, which, like you kind of described, is a tricky thing to get into when the a, a lot of, like, just in terms of word count, what's out there is on sites that will be unfamiliar to most people. And your storefront list of the um, traditionally published stuff is really that's a really good idea, and I'll make sure I've got a link to that in my show notes. But yes, Ed, what I'm trying to say is thanks and it's been great talking and sometime down the line you're always welcome back on the show if you wish for that well yeah thank you and i'd love to, to be back and uh, i'm more than happy to you know i don't want to get too sappy but i'm just all about spreading the love for wuxia and xianxia and these novels and i think that they're just they're great and i hope that more people over the years come to enjoy them and that's why i did my YouTube channel. That's why I have the resources on my website because whether it's my stuff or other people's stuff, there's just so much great content out there. And I hope that uh, anyone who has listened all the way to this point will take some time to kind of dig around and find what interests them. Because regardless of whether you're interested in action or adventure or romance, there is stuff out there that will interest you, whether it's Wuxia or Xianxia, there's stuff out there for you. So I hope that this can be an impetus for some people to make the leap and start poking around and find what they like. Hell yeah. What I can tell you is even a lot of the top translators of like traditional Chinese to English publishing, they've asked me like, what is this wuxia stuff? Are you going to do an episode on it? We have no idea. So, <laughs> and they, they comprise a significant slice of the, the listeners. So you'll be reaching them and that, who knows, if you can set them down that path, that really could create some cross fertilization between like the i don't know the nerd culture and the um the forums and the high ivory towers if the two things can combine nothing can you know nothing can stand in their way i think <laughs> sure well if i can if i can bring the message to more people you know the more the better i, I feel like the santa stuff is sort of like the um you know barsoom or tarzan or conan of the chinese you know entertainment entertainment mm. field back in the day you know all of that uh edgar rice bros stuff was kind of looked down on and over the years it's come to have a little bit of a different flavor for the uh, fan of literature and fiction so i think that the more people who are able to get into or at least sample the cultivation stuff will definitely be in for something interesting and same for wuxia i mean wuxia is even more mainstream nowadays than it's ever been so Definitely, definitely something to check out. So again, thanks for having me, and mm. I do hope to be on again someday. Awesome. So one more big thank you to Deathblade, aka Jeremy, for having such an enlightening chat with me. I learned a very great deal over a pretty short amount of time, and I had fun too. So what more could you ask? Now there's nothing left to do but get on with the plugs and then say goodbye. So first thing is. I'm going to plug are the ways that you can support the show materially and maybe get some bonus content in return. So all the bonus content is up on Patreon. If you give pretty much any monthly contribution, you get access to all of the bonus shows. And we had a pretty cool one I just posted yesterday, which fans of Chinese sci-fi will enjoy. It's like a run through of Ken Liu's Invisible Planets anthology. And I'll just give you my thoughts on all the stories and the essays uh, contained within. It was a pretty fun one to record and 
uh, I think the patrons liked it. So that's there. If you, like me, are terrified by the concept of money coming out of your bank account monthly and therefore, in theory, until you die, and that being a number multiplier that just strikes fear in your heart, there's also a way you can give a, give a one-off contribution and that's on buymeacoffee.com. You don't get any bonus content though, so you'll have to weigh that one up in your uh, mental and moral and emotional and financial calculus. But anyway, um, both of those sites are just patreon.com and buymeacoffee.com and then on the end of the URL slash churchufic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. That's them. Another fun place you can go, which is totally money free um, for you and for me, is Discord. Um, if you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where, well, the churchufic Discord is a place where um, fans of the show can join chat to me and each other uh, and I have like different channels in the discord set up so like there's one chat which is devoted to wuxia there's another which is devoted to sci-fi I make a channel a new channel for every episode so all sorts of fun things in there that's free and the link to the uh, discord invite will be in the show notes and also in the link tree link that I have at the top of my twitter and the top of my instagram speaking of which if you want to find those and you don't know where they are uh, the show's twitter is my own one it's just at Angus likes words. The show has its own Instagram account. It's at Trichofic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Those are fun places. Fun places? I don't know. That's subjective. They are useful places to get in touch with me. If you'd like to give any feedback on the show, if you think me or uh, Deathblade got anything wrong or we missed anything, or if you'd like to educate us about Baijiu from Taiwan, that's a good place to do it. He's on Twitter too, of course. Now, um, the last wee thing, I've already talked about this on the show, but um, Podbean is the site's new, uh, sorry, is the podcast's new host. We're on Podbean now. Uh, SoundCloud, I'm going to keep uploading there, but Podbean is the best place to go. Um, any podcast provider uh, will be getting its feed from there. So for most of you guys listening, that won't have changed, but trishafic.podbean.com, that's a cool place to read all the show notes because it reads all the album art and it lets me format the text. And I've got web pages there, the Trishafic map, is up there if you don't know what that is go look and i don't think there's anything else i can possibly say except the most important thing you can do for the show which is spread the word tell your friends tell your family and tell the massive mega corporation which is trying to steal your uh, creative rights away from you tell them let them know because they could benefit from hearing the wise words of myself and Deathblade. it would be a righteous thing to do and on that note zai jian